Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, if you're not familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle take turns introducing each other to movies. And in this way, we catch up on our cinema. Uh, so it is the month of March, and we're doing a little special event on the program we're calling Moving on March. Uh, essentially what this is is an excuse for both Kyle and I to... Uh, Take a look at the filmographies of actors and or directors who have recently or not so recently passed away. Um, and Kyle had the pick this week. And uh, Kyle, which uh, which star did you want to take a look at this week? Well, I wanted to cover Robin Williams. Uh, he is near and dear to both of us. I actually was backpacking when he passed away. Uh, and we were coming back down from the mountain. And someone's like, oh, Robin Williams passed away. And we were all like really fucking bummed about it. And that was like the first celebrity death where I was like, man, it, that one really hit me. Uh, because I, I really love Robin Williams. Uh, Birdcage is one of my favorite all-time films. And I think it's his best film. Uh, but I wanted, to, I wanted to find something of his that I hadn't seen. And we tossed around Cadillac Man. Um, there was the Angriest Man in Brooklyn. Boulevard was one, but we feel like Boulevard wouldn't make for a very good episode. We'd probably just watch that on our own. So I chose The Fisher King, uh, directed by Terry Gilliam, who we've also talked about doing um, his own special month. But he is a he is a challenging director in his own way. Um, I, I kind of lost my uh, faith in him after I watched The Lost in La Mancha. I really was disappointed in that film. Um, but we, you and I both love Brazil, so uh, we're big fans. Uh, he directed Brazil, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, 12 Monkeys, which I need to get around to, and my personal favorite, Monty Python, is The Meaning of Life. Uh, you can keep Life of Brian. That I can't even get through that. It's so stupid. Uh, and Holy Grail is annoying to this point. Uh, but yeah, this has got Robert Williams and uh, Jeff Bridges, who looks like distractingly like Val Kilmer in this movie. Yeah, there are definitely certain angles where like the light falls perfectly on his face, and it's like, holy shit, is that the saint? <laughs> I thought like... it was Val Kilmer in the previews. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I could see it. Um, I think the haircut kind of solidifies his Jeff Bridginess. Um, that, and I think there's some pot smoking that happens later on the movie. But <laughs> um... oh, he's in a bathtub. It also. <laughs> <laughs> All I could think yeah. while I was watching this, I'm like, I want to watch The Big Lebowski again. I need to watch it again. But yeah, I think this was a very good choice, um, and and a pretty solid movie actually. Yeah, um, I think it was a very good choice because it gave us an opportunity to, like you said, dip our toes into the world of Terry Gilliam, because uh, both you and I have a mutual appreciation for him, and we have been planning on doing an entire month just devoted to his work. Uh, so this was an excuse to both check out, you know, one of his his like, I wouldn't say earlier, but like a, a mid range work of his, yeah. and you know, something that we hadn't seen from Robin Williams before. And um, as somebody who has watched a fair amount of uh, Inside the Actors, Actors Studio, um, and by the way, that, that fellow passed away very recently too. Oh, did he? Um, yeah, uh, I think it's Lipton, I want to say is his last name. James Lipton, yeah. Yeah. Something like um, that. Yeah, he passed away very recently as well. I was bummed out to hear that because that show, despite you know all the the Saturday Night Live, yeah, that's like, all I could think of. <laughs> the the Will Ferrell rendition Scrum of the character is pretty. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Despite all that, though, it's a really great show. Like if you if you really are interested in getting to know actors and their processes, um, definitely check it out because I've learned a lot from watching his interviews. Um, and the reason why I bring it up is I remember. I think he had Robin Williams on there more than once, in fact. 
and uh they they spotlight certain films from each actor's filmography while they're interviewing them and i remember distinctly the fisher king was brought up and at the time i had no idea no clue, i mean it's yeah. one of those titles too that's like um, what i'm not sure i'm not sure if this actually is from uh not the bible but is a, an actual myth but the the title means nothing to me no. it's one of those things like that could be I, i'm sorry i picture a fucking kid with overalls and like a baseball cap going fishing or something yeah. <laughs> it's like oh it's probably like the sandlot but with fishing <laughs> well even like the cover has him and like has um jeff bridges and rob williams stand there and he's got like a suit on him like does somebody have cancer that's the only thing i can think of from their poses no, I'm like somebody and gets cancer. i'm looking at right now and there's like a, a angelic light yeah like spotlighting both of them and it's like uh is this like is this gonna be one of those movies <laughs> movie it's 91 it was ripe for an aids movie yeah honestly um but yeah it's funny that uh you mentioned terry gilliam uh being like difficult Mm because apparently he's a difficult man in general Um, yeah so i've heard yeah uh baby doesn't like to get put in a corner (laughs) 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 i mean even even like his uh like I don't even think he's like a hundred percent an American citizen. I think like he tried to renounce his citizenship at some point or something. He's a uh, very in two thousand six. Strange... Yeah, he renounced his as uh, his American citizenship. I didn't even realize he wasn't American. I thought that he was British. Yeah, I think based on like all the stuff he did um, for the Monty Python crew, uh, especially earlier in life, I just kind of assumed he was you know british like they were yeah um but no he's he's a man of the world and a very strange one at that but holy shit does he make interesting looking movies um even if sometimes the storytelling gets a little muddled uh he does have a cameo not really a cameo but it's like a really small role in uh, spies like us the dan Aykroyd and chevy chase movie um where he's using like doctor he's got like some kind of um eastern european accent fake eastern european accent so that threw me off even more so i'm like wait where's this dude from i don't have no clue he's american <laughs> that's uh that's right up there with uh david cronenberg's uh very strange cameos in uh was it nightbreed and uh jason x <laughs> there we go jason x i'm like i just re- i just remember hearing about another one the uh, the Brothers Grimm, which I watched, which was very forgettable. Um, Tideland is one that I'm going to check out here soon. But the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. Did you oh, ever you watch mean, that? I I did not, but there was like a running gag when I was in college that that was like the that was like lady porn the movie. Oh like, really? It's just filled with like dude heartthrobs. I was like, yeah, I, I think this movie would work for a certain crowd. Yeah. <laughs> most of whom I was, I, I went to an art school in the woods. <laughs> just like <laughs> mo- most of the, most of the heterosexual women in that, in that campus probably would have gone for that movie. Um, put it this way. There are a lot of labyrinth posters at my campus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Brothers Grimm, I remember that kind of came and went. It, I remember being kind of shocked that that was him. It just didn't seem like. I mean, no. the, the trailer. The trailers had a texture th- to them that definitely looked like him. His aesthetic, I've always described as being like cluttered. Yes, and it's very much. It's really, it's really interesting. Like it has a lovely texture to it. Like his sets oftentimes look like they'd be right at home at like Fraggle Rock or like a Muppet production or something. But yeah, um, I this think, was filmed uh, on location. We're, we're getting quite a bit of New York City here. Yeah, it it's kind of amazing how we we balance like some of the 
some of the fairly small sets, like really intimate, but very lavishly detailed sets with, like you said, like the actual streets of New York, um, has a lot of character to it. Um, a lot of care put into the visual texture of the movie. Um, but that being said, uh, do you want to get to it, Kyle? Yeah, I'll give you the uh, rundown of the film. So Jeff Bridges plays Jack, who is a shock jock who ends up losing his job. Uh, he's on the up. He's like on the upcoming up upward trajectory of being like a not even like a Howard Stern, just like a, like a B level Howard Stern kind of deal. Um, a mishap happens, and he ends up uh, drinking himself into working at a video store, and he finds uh, he bump manages to bump into Robin Williams, who he's had a bit of an effect on his life, I guess, and he feels compelled to uh, help him out of his situation, and that's kind of the film and uh, Jeff Bridges grows as a character uh, as a person in this film <laughs> uh, grudgingly uh, yeah most of the runtime is is him like resisting resisting the the call of fate like the hand of fate like pushing him towards growing as a person yeah um, but yeah it has a, a surprisingly upbeat finale unlike uh, some other movies of Terry Gilliam's filmography that actually share a lot of characteristics with this one um, but yeah, this was what nineteen ninety one. Yeah, ninety one. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I have a bit of brain fog going on. I don't have the fucking coronavirus, but <laughs> but um, uh, I I was turning things over in my head right after I finished this movie, and then I managed to forget all the like the lucid thoughts I had, um, about this era in film. Like the the word that keeps coming to mind when I think of nineteen ninety one is hyper real. Like there was a there was a lot of that going around. Like it was in the air where there there was a shit ton of movies coming out where it's like it's not a fantasy movie, but the behavior of the people in it and maybe like some of the set construction is just like outlandish to a degree where it's like this, these are not real people, and yet we're trying to pretend that they are. Like like kind of like imagine like Gremlins two for example. Like Gremlins two is a fucking cartoon. Um, but everything about it, it's like trying to tell you that it's like, no, this is this is actual New York. Like, and um, even like uh, Raising Arizona, the Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, like we, we, we decided not to do a review. Yeah. Of. <laughs> um, like, imagine, try to think of that when I'm when I'm saying what I'm saying right now, where it's like there's a lot of elements to that movie where it's like, yes, this takes place in our reality. But the people inhabiting it are cartoons, like more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this movie very much has that feel to it where everything's it's not like outlandish or cartoonish like to to an absurd degree like it the performances are very warm and and realistic for the most part they're just heightened i guess Mm -hmm. like everything in this movie is heightened but i'd say Um, that that's like a trademark of his though um i think that's that's an area he feels comfortable Uh, i can't speak to 12 monkeys but like or the the monty python movies i wouldn't count but like brazil is it's supposed to be you know dystopian like a future um so i think that's i mean it's heightened performances in there as well uh fear and loathing las vegas is supposed to be drugs but maybe this is just a lane that he's comfortable in like this is his storytelling technique lost in uh lost in la mancha is definitely hyper realistic like it's it's very strange it's a very very strange film even for him 
No, you're you're absolutely right. It's definitely his wheelhouse. Like that's just his style, and mm-hmm. you know, working with the Monty Python guys probably helps with that. Um, but is there I was another just film? Curious this... about the time period. Yeah. Do you have a film in mind that you're thinking of? Because I I'm like, there's like before Jurassic Park and after Jurassic Park when it comes to the early. Well, this, 90s. this would I'm be like, before Jurassic. Park. Yeah, that's why I'm like, I, I don't really know. I'm not too too familiar with anything before that because it kind of just starts getting into the gray 80s. Like you know that we're in like that transition from 80s to 90s movies, and I just can't think of any off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm embarrassed because I I had several examples like last night, but I lost all of them. But <laughs> since then, but yeah, like just. For the folks at home that are trying to follow along with us, just like if you've seen it, Raising Arizona, uh, or if you're familiar with the this very strange comedic tone that Gremlins 2 has, <laughs> maybe keep that in the back of your mind. Um, but anyway, our movie actually starts, I believe, on a, back, a black screen, and uh, the first thing we get is the song Hit the Road, Jack. Um, I was a big fan of this song when I was a little kid. <laughs> Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk was the same year. Oh, f- Oh, good example. There you go. Very good example, because Hudson Hawk is exactly what I'm talking about. That movie's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and not in the, not in the fun way. Uh, that movie hurt a lot of people's careers for a very long time. Um, Bruce Willis got out okay. Uh, yeah, Danny Aiello, did he? I, think he, I think he got out okay, too, because he's just Danny Aiello, oh, who recently passed away as well. Mm. Um yeah, our film begins with Hit the Road, Jack, and uh, then we get a sound effect of a car crash, and uh, we get this really awesome crane shot inside of a recording booth in a, like a radio studio, and it's a downward angle, um, and it's, it's staring straight down at, at a sh- figure who's cast in shadow, like lording over this, this massive desk with like all manner of audio equipment, and I think he has, are these eight tracks that he's using or just like plain old cassettes? I think it's just cassettes. Okay, well, he's he's swapping them out like mad. Like he, he has trained hands, like he has educated hands. Um, but I noticed here, like right off the bat, you get some amazing Terry Gilliam for like artistic flourishes here where there's shadows laid on all the walls in this room that look like jail bars. Oh, I didn't um, even catch that. Oh, it's amazing. Look, it, like the room is perfectly square, so it's a cube, and it's just a man in a desk and centered in the room. And for the most part, it's it's just blank. There's not even like soundproofing on the walls or anything. And yeah, these shadows are cast on every wall around him uh, that look like jail bars, and it's it's like he's in a jail cell or something. Um, but yeah, all the shots in this room, um, you can tell that they constructed a set here because it's all on. A, like a floaty, like rotating crane that's lends a lot of production value. I'll say that much. It looks great. Um, um, and right off the bat, just from looking at the guy's uh, wardrobe, his attire, you can see the uh, Howard Stern parallels. Um, you want to describe what it looks like here, Kyle? Mm. Um, I kind of like Ace Ventura, I suppose. Uh. <laughs> well, he has a trench coat because it is the early '90s. He looks. He's he's wearing Raphael's trench coat from TMNT. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's. I think he's got sunglasses indoors. He's got like a ponytail and greased hair and like an earring because he's edgy. <laughs> oh yeah, he's just he's a he's a shock jock. Uh, I guess everybody was trying to be Howard Stern, or was Howard Stern even like popular at this point? Yeah, okay. pretty sure. 
then yeah, this is a Howard Stern type, I guess. Uh, but even still, like, I guess he's like a tell it how it is kind of uh, guy. People call in and ask him questions. He's like, well, you're stupid, and that's a dumb idea. Well, you're never going to be anything, dude. Like, just kind of an asshole, basically. He's just, he's just an asshole on a radio station. Uh, yeah, how many calls. times is this archetype going to pop up in movies that you have me watch, Kyle? I, I, think, <laughs> I haven't... Uh... <laughs> Well, I don't, this, I mean, this, this job here doesn't really exist anymore. It's all podcasters or serious radio. Uh, I mean, you've got your local, like your local city, like radio stations, but they don't, they don't do this stuff really, do they? Yeah, do they I'm still pretty do sure, I'm pretty sure Alice Cooper's a nice guy on the radio and Opie and Anthony are gone, so they don't do their thing anymore. Um, <laughs> no, Anthony... <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, uh, he, he, I think he kind of uh, he burned his own career there. Uh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, like I do like uh, like the bonfire with Big J Okerson and Dan Soder. Fuck, dude, they are hilarious. Uh, they're from they're both stand up comedians. Uh, and they uh, Big J has a podcast, uh, Legion of Skanks. Um, he's a really funny stand up comedian. But their their bonfire, it's a like. Comedy Central Radio or something like that. Um, okay. Jim Nort, uh, Jim Norton, he's another stamp comedian. Uh, he does um, like a serious uh, XM radio, something like that. He, um, he has a show with Matt Sarah. No, is he really the, the former UFC? Yeah, fighter. two nope. two bald guys, <laughs> two, two bald guys yelling about stuff. <laughs> Um, but I guess I, I feel like it's I guess a bit more of an East Coast thing because these are all I think these guys are all like East Coast guys. I guess that I guess I it's popular right, over there yeah. still because um, everybody in the West Coast does podcasts, <laughs> from what I've gathered. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, I I was a big fan of uh, uh, Bob and Tom when I was a kid. I think they were I think he was based out of Indy or Chicago. I can't remember, but they were close to where I grew up. Um, and then they don't do it anymore. I was really bummed that uh, Bob and Tom. I think Tom. I think Bob left the show, and I just I, I'm not gonna listen to just Tom. He's an asshole. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he's uh, Jack is just uh, he is shock jocking, and these guys behind the counter they are fucking loving this shit, dude. They're like they're like clapping in the other room, like yeah, fucking go, dude. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a douchebag. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jack Lucas is this character's name, and I noted here that this entire sequence, um, we do not get a single clear shot of his face. No. Um, it's all either from behind or above, or his face is cast in shadow. And a, uh, a pivotal moment happens here, and you may not be aware of it until a few minutes later in the movie, but um, my ears definitely perked up because this guy had a tone in his voice <clears> that suggested... Maybe he doesn't need to be insulted or put mm. down right now. Um, and this fellow by the name of Edwin calls in. And from, from the exchange of dialogue, it becomes apparent that uh, Edwin is a frequent caller. Um, he calls in a lot, uh, probably for like personal updates and whatnot. So like, like this is a common thing with any radio show is, you know, repeat callers and stuff. Like They become elements of the show to some yeah. degree. Bob, um, and Tom, Bob and Tom had... They had repeat callers, but it was all guys that worked for the radio station. So there was one guy, he was like, ah, it's Pete. Hey, we just landed every time, <laughs> every single time. And then they had another guy named Donnie Baker, who was just this redneck. He's fucking hilarious. You always perked up when you heard Donnie Bakers on the, on the, on the radio. But yeah, that, but they, were, they weren't repeat callers as in like actual radio station kind of thing. It was the guys that worked there. 
I remember my my brother. I can't remember the names of the callers, but my brother like sent me some stories or some videos about uh, people who were exactly like this Edwin character, like not having a whole lot going on in their lives mm-hmm. outside of calling into a show, and it was massively depressing, just like this character Edwin. Um, but yeah, he calls in and he's talking about like, oh, I, like I went to this place called Babbitts and like I, I, I met this this young gal and like I, I thought I, I think I think she's the one I think I think I can make a connection with her. And like Jack just jumps on him like a rabid dog. Like he tears right the fuck into him. But in Jack's defense, you can tell that this is a conversation they've had before mm-hmm. on the air. And, you know, if you're probably getting to the end of a very long rate like show on the on the air. You're probably going to lose your patience at some point, so it's like you can't entirely blame him for being a, a horrible dick to this guy on the air. But we'll see what happens. Well, <laughs> kind of he has the... some choice words here. To I was just say like forty-year-old virgin. They're like, he's not going to do it himself. Like they're getting frustrated with him. Like we're going to have to facilitate things, so they get him a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> like he's getting frustrated. He's not. He's not listening. Okay, we're going to just take. Like, I, I taught him how to. I taught him how to. You know. Plant, plant the seeds. Plant the seeds. Then, <laughs> He's not doing it. And then fuck the plant. Fuck the plant. <laughs> um, but yeah, he has some choice words here about, like, he goes off on, like, a Holden Caulfield-esque rant. Yeah. Thank you for... Yeah. the way of the world. And uh, he uses the phrase yuppie inbreeding. And yeah. It, he has this tirade that's actually really eloquently worded, and it's it's good scripting, for fucking sure. Um, but he... He counters Edwin's like retort in trying to say like, oh, but like you know we're looking for love and stuff, and and uh, Jack counters by saying like these people only offer love in moments, um, and I was like, ooh, this this is topical, <laughs> like this feels relevant to today, where it's like oh like poor Edwin, imagine imagine having Tinder, <laughs> it's like fuck. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the radio show concludes with Edwin's, you know, heart thoroughly torn out and you know stomped on the curb um, with, "I've got the power." <laughs> I've got the power. <laughs> um, if you're familiar with Jock Jams, oh then, yeah, <laughs> then you are familiar with "I've got the power." Um, and his uh, Jack's uh, sign-off line is, "Thank God I'm me." Yeah, that's like a Chevy Chase. Like I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. Like. Yeah. kind of it's, yeah it's a big fuck you to the audience who you know are happily listening to him for entertainment day in and day out um and then we we head out into the city streets uh, we get a, a lovely downward angle shot of a whole bunch of taxis piled up in traffic and then we cut to the interior of a, a car like a luxury sedan or something with uh jack played by jeff bridges who we now get to finally see his his face in daylight um he's lounging in the back seat of of this luxury vehicle with uh, david hyde pierce <laughs> um, who is his agent i believe yeah niles niles crane <laughs> niles crane. i can't i can't i can't do a niles voice but dr fraser crane <laughs> um and then a, a homeless man knocks on the window and we get a uh, the introduction of a ongoing theme throughout this movie and like like you had brought up before i think we started recording um a theme in Terry Gilliam's filmography, uh, classism. Mm. Um, this homeless man starts knocking on the window, um, and both men inside the vehicle completely ignore him willfully. Well, well think about the guys. That, think about this. So we we talked about this before too. Is Terry Gilliam's an American, and he's worked 
I'd say the majority of his like early career was Monty Python. He was he acted, wrote, and directed several of those movies. Um, but think about the shoulders he's bumping. Those call I think all those guys went to Cambridge. Like they're all like pretty well off, uh, and that's probably the people that he was around all the time. And I'm guessing a um, a kid from uh, Minnesota uh, is probably gonna rub people the wrong way in those circles. So I could see him maybe like having. Uh, butted heads with some people in that in that area. Well, also imagine a like not only a man from that upbringing, but a man with his artistic sensibilities. Mm, yes, he's going to be a his his thought process is going to be a little different from people, no matter where he goes. Um, but being a true foreigner, like a stranger in a strange land, it's probably going to reinforce like a lot of that standoffish quality that sometimes comes about in those circumstances um but yeah uh they ignore this homeless gentleman and then we cut to an apartment a very very nice apartment posh um, very posh um like windows overlooking the city as represented by some like cardboard drawings of, (laughs) of the city like this is very clearly a set you can tell that like the it's not even a matte painting. It's just some photos of the cityscape, like probably six inches from the outside of the windows. Um, but well, yeah, there's glass everywhere. There's a staircase in the middle of the apartment. He's doing really well, which I do. I took a radio class when I was in high school. We talked to like people who are real uh, radio like disc jockeys. Like they don't make any money. He's like the hours suck. You'll take any job you can get. The money's awful. So. He must be much more. So that's what doesn't make sense for me, is what what derails his career coming up. I'm like, if he was this successful, it wouldn't derail his career. I don't think. I think it just would have been a, a speed bump, and he would have been just fine. Or he's not actually that famous, and they fired him, and then, in which case, I don't think he was making enough money to actually afford this place because this place is a palace in what I can assume is Manhattan. I think it's. I think the explanation is more to do with his reaction to things rather than him being fired. I don't think he was fired. I think oh, you don't think more, so? I think it was more just him willfully stepping back and saying, I can't uh, do this. Okay, I guess that makes more sense. Okay. I mean, it fits with the theme of the rest of the movie where most of it is him getting in his own way. Yeah, um, I guess that's true. It's like, actually, he doesn't have that many serious problems. He just needs to fucking realize the good things that he has and embrace them. Yeah, you um, know it's the early '90s because he's got a girlfriend with a short haircut. Like this, there was like a what, like a a good two year window where you could have this haircut. Because Lori Petty, I think her whole career, she just had this haircut and then just over. Whenever yeah. that haircut went out, she went out too. I mean, always the later on when when we meet Lydia, immediately I was like hey, Bridget Fonda in a. Uh, Single, Single white, white female. female, yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the mushroom hairdo. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was like a very distinct window of time in which this was socially acceptable yeah. and considered, you know, chic. Um, but yeah, we get a reminder that we are indeed watching a Terry Gilliam film in a in the form of a a, a dolly shot. It's it's very energetic. Oh, it's yeah. just it's just a pan from left to right, following uh, his girlfriend in the foreground while he sits in the background. But. Um, she spins this like like really it's I'm, i hate to say it, but it it is a piece of yuppie garbage art that it's, yeah. it's just like it's just like imagine one panel of a rubik's cube but made of glass 
<laughs> I just I forgot I, I forgot to mention this in Beetlejuice the yuppies that come over like her uh, her agent do you realize who that was? Uh, tell me. Dick Cavett. Oh really? Yeah, that was Dick Cavett. The it, fucking it, night sh- it was his voice. That's what threw me off because I'm like that sounds a lot like Dick Cavett. I'm like oh it's because it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It was bothering me. I, I I'm like I. Need to tell somebody, like somebody who would who would know who that is. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think that's a timely reference, though, because like uh, again, Beetlejuice, hyper real, kind of fits in with nineteen. Yes, eighty-eight. For fucking yeah. sure. Um, but yeah, uh, Jack is pretty high on himself, um, but he he has this recurring thing he does throughout the rest of the movie where he uh, talks about the titles for his like autobiography. Um, and he has he has a couple of them, Kyle. Do you remember what they are uh-uh. in, in this scene? Well, basically, all of them are him just like stroking his ego. Um, it's basically his name plus a subtitle of some sort. And then he's like, you know, I think I changed my mind. I think another like a, an alternate title could just be Jack! Exclamation point! I was like, oh my god! <laughs> it's like your dick is this big. <laughs> I mean, he is a good look. Like I, I didn't know Jeff Bridges was good looking. Like he is. He's, you didn't? I didn't know that. I I just know him from his Lebowski forward movies. Like I don't. Oh. I haven't seen anything uh, before Lebowski. Oh well, I mean Tron. Tron Jeff Bridges is a pretty handsome man. Yeah, I didn't watch Tron. You don't need to. Um, <laughs> but uh, a movie that. I don't know when it's going to be released anymore, but a movie that I've been wanting to have you watch uh, for the show is uh, the 1970, I want to say 76, King King Kong. Oh. And he looks terrible in that. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, well, it's he's he's got a big old beard and, you know, long greasy hair. Um it's it's a it's a look that he can pull off, but it's like it's very much of its time. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we cut to Jack in in his yuppie tub. Uh, holy shit, this is an amazing bathtub, by the way. Yeah. Um, and he has a script, and he is reading lines aloud to himself, and we can tell, um, based on his conversation with his agent in the car, David Hyde Pierce, um, that he has some sort of audition or something coming up. Uh, they want him to do something other than the radio um and he's reading lines to himself and he comes across one uh forgive me um that he kind of latches on to and he starts doing what actors do and just continually repeats it to himself in different tones and different in different speeds um <laughs> and then he starts putting blue mud on his face and i was like oh okay he's doing like a patrick bateman thing here <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, cut to night, and he's still alone in his apartment, still repeating those lines. So apparently he's taking this shit pretty seriously, despite his ego. Um, and then the news comes on. And uh, Kyle, do you want to tell us what he sees here on the news? Yeah, so apparently um, there's been a massacre down at a restaurant, uh, I guess not too far from him. Um, a guy uh, killed killed six people and then killed himself um, because of... Uh, something that happened to him that day and it was because a radio shock jock uh went off on him and told him that he was never going to amount to anything basically yeah um and we get 
a close-up of Jack's face, and we can see that despite all his cynicism up to this point in the movie, he, this is hitting him, like, yeah. for real. He's he, he is genuinely horrified. Um, and, yeah, in fact, Edwin, who had called in, went to Babbitt's, the restaurant that he had mentioned on the air, um, and he shot a bunch of people as well as himself. And uh, I made sure to write down the quote here from the from the news reporter because I thought it was pretty pretty solid. Um, um, but today, few will soon forget this lonely man who reached out to a world he knew only through the radio, looking for friendship and finding only pain and tragedy. And I think Jeff Bridges' reaction to the end of the broadcast is just fuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we get a title uh, three years later. And yeah. uh, cut to the exterior of a place that we'll be seeing a lot of throughout the rest of this movie, the video spot. And I love this sign. Um, you can tell that it was it was made for the movie. It, it's overly designed, but in like a fun way, I guess. But yeah, it's called the video spot. And uh, we go inside and we see that it's mostly an adult video store. Um, and I think this is where we get introduced to Anne. Um, who is played by an actress who I had to look up her name because um, Mercedes uh, Mercedes Ruel. Um, this this is a woman who I know like as soon as I saw her on screen I was like oh that's the mom from Big, but then I thought about it a little bit longer and I was like holy shit that's also the mom from Last Action Hero. <laughs> and, yeah, I knew her and, from Lost in Yonkers. It's funny because like I can't like those are the two movies that come to mind. Um, that I've seen her in, but I really liked her in this. And I, when I thought about it some more, I was like, you know, I think I just like her. Like she just seems cool. <laughs> like she's a fun actress. Um, like you said off the air, though, she is playing a cartoon character. Yeah. Um, but it's an enjoyable cartoon character, so I really appreciated her in this movie. Um, but yeah, she she apparently is the owner of the video spot, and she's running around dealing with the clientele. Um, she hustles into the back, and we get to see Jack looking like shit. Uh, he's hanging out in the back of the store. He looks like shit. <laughs> yeah, he is strung out and then some. His skin is greasy. Uh, he got he's got bags under his eyes. He looks like garbage. Yeah. Um. And did you notice here that there's a the Brazil, Brazil poster? poster? Yeah, I saw the Brazil poster. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, Baron von Munchausen. Uh, you can barely see it in uh, the background of the video store, but it's also there. Um, man, this I was watching this. And I'm like, I wish we had video stores. I would just like I wouldn't even call it giving up. I would just be happy working at a, a movie rental place. I could totally do that, but no, can't do that. Yeah, I was really bummed when the uh, the Fremont DVD rental store closed down because I never actually went there. But it's like, man. It's people like me that made this place go away. <laughs> Scarecrow's still going strong, though. Well, Scarecrow's one in a million, though. Like they it have, really is. They have the reputation of being like not only a neighborhood establishment, but also like like an American. The, yeah. Well, they're like a film conservatory at this point. Yeah, like they are. Put it this way: if Scarecrow was to be threatened financially in any way, pretty sure Seattle would bail them out. Oh yeah, because because it, it's important. Like, it's an Damn. establishment that needs to continue. I'll donate money, for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, Jack is hiding in the back, um, and Anne, his, who we will learn in just a minute here, is his girlfriend, 
very supportive girlfriend, very tolerant, very patient girlfriend. <laughs> um, she kind of pushes him out to deal with the public because she's like, you know, you've been hiding out here for too long. Um, and we get this really intense POV shot from it's his a Gilliam shot. We do, it's a it's a Gilliam shot. Yeah, it's a Gilliam. Uh, <laughs> the, the lensing f- they use, like the lenses that they used for this POV shot, I don't know enough about technical stuff to tell you what kind of lenses, but it's, it's not borderline fish, fish eye. eye. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I, I was trying to write down too, I'm like, it's not fish eye, but it's something along those lines. I know I know what you're trying to get. Dolphin eye, maybe, because they can pop out of the water. Maybe it's a dolphin <laughs> eye lens. Um, but yeah, if if you've seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I've only seen because Kyle made me and because my brother was really into it back in the day, um, this, these are shots that you're going to be very familiar with. Yes, very um, much. <laughs> so this is him looking at the people around him and being like utterly terrified and freaked out by them. And then, of course, we have Kathy Najimy mm. run up to him and start running her mouth. And she, again, is playing a cartoon character. Very much. Um, and she gets right up into the camera. Uh, it's a little terrifying. And she just will not shut up. I don't know <laughs> what it is about the like this angle particularly. I, I don't know of any other director that uses it as uh, as frequently as he does. It's not even, this, it's not even like a Sam Raimi kind of angle. Uh, but I, I like its use in his movies because it adds like a, a cartoonish element to what I mean, it's like a real life situation, but it adds like a, a cartoonish element to it. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny because uh, this is something that I mean, I've only made stupid short films with my friends, but this is something that I've like inadvertently, I guess, borrowed from him is I like I like faces. So I'm actually I'm always happy when people ram the camera into people's faces. <laughs> like, like it's something that I like. I like to see the intimate details of the way people's faces move. And like, it makes everyone look hideous. I don't care how beautiful you are. If a camera is right up in your nose, you look bad. I don't know the, <laughs> that I caught the iconic shot from uh, the evil dead. I think evil dead Two, the, uh, the one, the Bruce Campbell, the, ah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he still looks handsome there. <laughs> I think he's impervious I mean, it, to it. His bone structure is immaculate, even yeah. to this day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's the one where he has the uh, the Mickey Mouse nose. He's yeah. got like dirt on his face. <laughs> I think that is the first one. Uh, I think it might be in both. They blend. Um, yeah, I, I like thinking back to them. They kind of blend together. Army of Darkness know, is completely different. I know for certain it's in two. Um, okay, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's also well in all of them. But I know for certain it's two because it's when the the cabin starts freaking out and he starts mm. laughing along with it. Um, but yeah, Kathy Najimy, she she's like looking for a movie and she's rambling about like she wants this and this and this and this and this in her movie. And we keep cutting back and forth between them, and he just looks utterly freaked the fuck out. <laughs> um, and eventually he uh, kind of gets his wits about him and he puts some distance between the two of them and he tosses her a big box porno. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he, he has returned to his jackiness and uh, yeah, big, bo- big box VHSs are something that I'm glad oh. um, I was around for because th- it was always very interesting to see those at the store. I'm looking for a film. Uh, it's a particular kind of film. Like Nick Cage from 8mm walks in looking yeah. for a snuff film. <laughs> oh, man, that would be a brilliant crossover. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah. <laughs> Nick Cage. <laughs> or, Nick Cage uh, on the hunt for a snuff film at the video spot. Adorable uh, Joaquin Phoenix in a belly shirt smoking a cigarette. Man, we don't have that one here. 
Oh man, you know, I don't I know Terry Gilliam I know his reputation dealing with producers, but I have no idea of his reputation dealing with actors. But I feel like I'm the, curious, like imagine Nick Cage in a Terry Gilliam film. That would he was he's actually perfect for it. Uh, I mean, hyper real, broad, cartoonish. You think? <laughs> I think yeah, that's why that's why I wanted to see this. I'm like Terry Gilliam and Robin Williams. I'm like this could be interesting because I, um, what's his face Benicio in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Have you ever seen him put in a performance like that where he's just. He's fucking hilarious in that movie. And there's nothing like it. Like, yeah, he can he can get that out. And Johnny Depp in that movie too. He can get that kind of performance out. But I think I wonder how his relationship was with Robin Williams on here. He's like, okay, you're gonna act a little crazy, and you're like, not that crazy. Like, throttle back, dude. Like, just give me something it, it, I can work with. It's funny because like I I honestly have no idea. Just just based on the results that we've gotten on the screen. Like I don't know if he's a if he's a tyrant or if he welcomes improv or mm. or what. I have no idea. I think I, he'd have I should to look into that. Though. Yeah, I, I'm gonna go with he welcomes improv. I, I'm sure you know about the fa- the famous scene from Life of Brian, Biggest Dickus. Um, you know that scene I'm talking about. I don't actually. Biggest Dickus. They're it's do, they're doing a play on words, and I guess all the extras were like Centurion guards, and uh, they start giggling. And they're not supposed to be laughing, or like they didn't know what was going to happen in the scene. So uh, the guy just recently passed away, but he's the one. He like goes up to each one of them and is like doing it right in front of their face, get, like trying to get them to break, basically. Uh, and they left it in the film. So I would be surprised if he if he's for a little bit of improv. I mean, those guys, I'm sure, do Monty Python. They have to do some kind of improv doing those movies. Oh, I should hope so. Yeah. And, and I mean, you got to be fucking quick if you're dealing with John Cleese. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he has. I don't think he has much patience when it comes to people who can't keep up. Yeah, that's I just my take that. on things. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Jack uh, gets kicked upstairs by Anne, his girlfriend again, and the owner of the video spot. Because uh, she catches this interaction, she's like, eh, "Maybe you're not fit to deal with the public just yet." <laughs> he's drunk um, and or drinking. I'm sorry, he's drinking and or drunk at this point, and hungover, and yes. hasn't slept in weeks. From the like, he looks, he looks like Charlie Sheen in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like he looks like shit. You could have just said he looks like Charlie, Charlie Sheen. Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, they go upstairs, and it's after hours now, and they start watching a sitcom, and it's obviously some sort of domestic, you know, comedy sitcom, and Harry Shearer is the star yeah, of the show. Yeah. Uh, Harry Shearer with a big, big curly tuft of hair. Uh, it's kind of weird looking. I'm not used to seeing him with that much hair. Handsome Dan. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Jack starts ranting about the show not being funny, and uh, they get into a little argument here, uh, he and Anne. And uh, he insults her intelligence. Um, Ooh, yeah. Went, yeah, pretty harshly. And yeah. he does this many times in the movie, but this was pretty mean. Because um, she, like, does probably the right thing here. And she's he goes off in another one of his Holden Caulfield rants about the you know the world is shit, everybody's dumb, blah, 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 blah. Um, and she's like, hey, maybe, like, all those thoughts that you have in your head, it's beautiful that you have those, but maybe you should find a way to divert yourself from, like, embracing them all the time because it's self-destructive, and I live with you, and it's probably not great to hear you do this every fucking night. Um, and, yeah, he 
basically does like you wouldn't understand man and he insults her taste in in media in the form of like a romance novel well reading do you notice what he's saying what harry shearer is saying yes yeah uh i think i don't think he's being completely honest with her what he's saying is the titular line uh was it forgive me or forgive me forgive (laughs) me uh, yeah, so this was the the part in the TV show that he would have had if he had exactly. not uh, brought a man to kill himself and yeah. six people. Um, it's funny. I can't I can't help but think of. Uh, sorry to reference this because you probably aren't aware, but um, there was a Legend of Zelda cartoon no. back in the day, and uh, for whatever the fuck reason, uh, Link, you know the the hero of the Zelda games, uh-huh. uh, he, he had a catchphrase. And it was, excuse me, princess. Really? Yeah, really. <laughs> wow. Um, in, in our medieval fantasy story. <laughs> excuse <Okay>. me. <laughs> um, but yeah, hearing Harry Shearer say, forgive me. <laughs> it made me think of that. Um, but yeah, Jack storms off in a huff because obviously he's got some mixed emotions going on here. And he's drunk and or hand hung over. Yeah. Uh, so he storms out into the rain, and goddamn, he looks Terry like Gilliam shit. makes visually compelling movies. Um, and here is where we get confirmation that he does indeed live above the video spot with Anne. Um, and uh, I don't know that this is the first example of it in the movie, but something that you, you potential viewer of this movie, need to know is that probably like 75 percent of this movie is shot in dutch angles yeah <laughs> um uh yeah we we get this really beautiful shot of and very off-kilter shot of jack walking down the street in the rain and it's just this dutch angle of him walking away from us uh, and holy shit it looks amazing it looks like something out of like a batman movie <laughs> um but yeah we we have a low angle close-up following him to a uh the exterior of a hotel i think and we get to see a rich man and his son come out and get accosted by some homeless person so again yeah. we're touching on that you know classism. classism and uh it like in the midst of all this chaos the the young boy runs up to jack and gives him a pinocchio yeah the the pinocchio in this movie i don't understand i don't understand what the point of the Pinocchio. it it's throughout the film the pinocchio doll is throughout the film let your conscience be your guide. Um, telling lies um, uh, becomes a real boy. I, I think. I think that it loosely touches on Jack as a character. Okay, I guess loosely. Not. Not. It's not a hundred percent clear, but I think there's something there. Perhaps. I think. I think the let your conscience be your guide is the big thing, um, because that's that's his character to a T. Is him having Jiminy Cricket like on his shoulder and like tuning him out throughout the entire movie until yeah. the very end. Yeah. He's, uh, he's made his way to some kind of dock looking thing next to the river. Uh, and he is drinking by himself from a plastic bag and he's quoting Nietzsche. Um, yes. if you're ever drunk with somebody and they start quoting Nietzsche, like you need to be on suicide watch because Nietzsche, <laughs> Nietzsche isn't, uh, He's he's not an easy philosopher to stomach. He's he's a, he's a bit tough and he's a bit pessimistic. Um, he wrote, I think, a few books uh, while he was dying. So maybe maybe not the best person to read, especially in this state. Uh, but the quote is, um, 
there are there are two types of people in the world. There are people who are destined for greatness. There are police sirens, uh, and then there are <laughs> people who are what 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 are the other people called? Not low lives, but um, uh, he says there are two kinds of people. Like people are destined for greatness, and everyone else. Everyone and else. The, yeah. The phrase that he uses is the bungled and the botched. <laughs> there we go. The bungled and the botched. Um, he's yeah. saying like people who are destined for greatness are like the one in a million people, like uh, Elon Musk, uh, just people who were like not necessarily super geniuses, but like unnaturally successful. And I feel like that's a that's a that's a very that's a very poor outlook to have on life. Is yeah, there's only like the super rich, like the super successful, and then there's just everybody else. Yeah, uh, again, Holden Caulfield. Yeah. <laughs> just like, just like the good old answers, man. Nothing matters, man. <laughs> just end Shut up, with man. Virgin. Uh. <laughs> um, but he changes the title for his biography here. Um, so it went from Jack exclamation point to Jack. Uh, it was no fucking picnic. Colin, the Jack Lucas story. Uh, so obviously he's uh, taken a turn for the worse in terms of his outlook on life. Um, and then uh, the score kind of kicks in here. And I actually don't know who scored this film. I'll look it up really quick. Uh, George Fenton, who is not really known to me, but I'll continue digging here. Nope, not really familiar with him. Uh, he did Multiplicity and Groundhog Day. I like Multiplicity. <laughs> I can't tell you a single note from the soundtrack, though. Um. Anyway, uh, the score kind of kicks in here, and uh, there's a saxophone on it, and some melancholy strings. Good, good piece of music. Um, again, made me think of Terry Gilliam. So we're doing it right. Uh, kind of reminded me a bit of some of the stuff in Brazil, where it has a like a grand orchestra feel in an otherwise like I don't know not 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 small but just like more intimate kind of story i guess um anyway uh we proceed from that and uh jack has taken himself uh to the underbelly of a bridge i'm not sure which bridge unfortunately i don't know enough about was it new york um and terry gilliam has strategically placed a fog machine and some lovely blue lights down here to give it some atmosphere and uh just based on Jack, his his mental state and his facial expression, we can tell he is prepared. He is preparing to toss himself in the river. Also, he has some cinder blocks tied to his feet. Um, so yeah, he is not in a good headspace right now. Cement galoshes. Yeah, but he gets interrupted by some hooligans who pull up in a jeep with gas cans and a bat. What the fuck kind of reality does this take place in that uh, they would just? randomly pull up <laughs> i think it's like uh sea bass bumping into uh lloyd at the the bathroom stall it's like if you want to be here for some manly love be here at 2 15 a.m it's like every night they go down there to beat ass it's just like whoever's down at the dock at fucking 1 30 in the morning we're just gonna beat them and set them on fire that's what's gonna I happen i mean I'm just saying these people should have been wearing Foot Clan uniforms because yeah. <laughs> it's just, just like I don't know how bad New York was in 1991, but I guess I guess it's plausible. <laughs> Dan Futterman um, is one of the uh, punks. Uh, Val from the Birdcage, uh, yes. his his son in there. He does not look like a punk at all. Like he no. he looks like a prep school bitch. Like he doesn't look like a punk. 
yeah like they they did some stuff with his makeup to like make him look tougher like no, they, they gave him... <laughs> no it didn't it didn't help i mean not with not with that schnoz and that, that body floppy type. hair yeah yeah, he, he looks like a friend. He looks like Chandler Bing's brother. He <laughs> looks like he's gonna run his ex, like his expensive rich uh, wrist watched hand like just over the over through the the floppy hair. Yeah, like he doesn't look like a punk. No, not at all. But I I thought that was really interesting that he's one of the hooligans, and sure enough, he'd be in the birdcage with Robin Williams. Oh yeah, like only a few years after this. So maybe they maybe they had a conversation on the set and like exchange phone numbers or something who knows um but yeah uh they start beating on jack pretty seriously um and then we get our introduction for robin williams uh the the entire reason we're here (laughs) and he appears to be some kind of homeless vigilante uh at this he's the point. Punisher. <laughs> we, we we know nothing about him to this point, other than he just kind of comes up. Yeah, he's the Punisher. He's he just comes up, and he's talking about like like knighthood or something like that. Like I, I'm not hold entirely... varlet or feel the sting of my shaft. Yeah, but, but you know, a hundred decibels louder and coming from a, a hairy little man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah, Robin Williams enters the film by yelling something like a knight would say, and then shooting a literal arrow <laughs> into the birdcage guy. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, no, he... no, it's a hook arrow. It's like the ones that they use in Hook for training him. It's like a foom, like a suction thing. Oh, like a plunger arrow? Yeah, it was like a plunger <laughs> arrow. <laughs> Holy shit. I've been um, shot. <laughs> he starts uh, laying into these two hooligans, and we get some hard Fs, some hard F words. Oh, yeah, I caught uh, that. There's a handful of them in this movie. Um, and, yeah, the, the score turns very cartoony and, like, melodramatic. Like I said, this is a full fucking orchestra. So what we're seeing is a, a hairy old, like, a tiny hairy homeless man beating up some shockingly handsome young hooligans yeah. <laughs> while a full fucking orchestra plays so it's a very strange scene um but then an army and an army of homeless people arrive and they all look like larpers because they're all yeah, they all they kind of like have LARPers. like a knightly quality to them one of them is holding like a tire iron cross mm-hmm. um yeah they, they definitely look like larpers but moment almost. for moment for crossover deadpool shows up <laughs> like that'd be more fun Absolutely. Um, and they begin singing because Robin Williams is leading them in a song, apparently, to combat the hooligans. Yeah. Uh, anyway, long story short, Jack is saved and they bring him back to some sort of encampment, like a homeless encampment underneath the bridge. And this whole sequence looks like something out of Beyond Thunderdome. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it has, like the editing here has like a manic quality to it that carries on for like the next 15 20 minutes of the movie and it it kind of puts you on your heels to be honest it's i think it's supposed to because um i think we're supposed to be kind of going through what jeff bridges is going through at this moment like it's this is a strange change of like chain of events here like he's about to get attacked and then a group of homeless vigilantes come over and save him kind of i guess save him like they're it's it's a little weird and now he's yeah he's back with all these homeless people so yeah it's it's yeah it's, it's a bit much to take yeah and the the lensing here like definitely a lot of cameras being rammed in people's faces like i said the edits are very frantic here and you're definitely put in in jack's shoes here you're just like i don't know what the fuck is going on like i don't even know if he's safe everybody's laughing though so i guess he's okay um 
and then we cut to a different scene and we get a, a intense POV shot um, with Robin Williams uh, looking directly into the camera and he gives a very pleasant very sweet hi welcome back um, and then we get a, a shot pulled back so we can see where we are and I I couldn't help but think of Brazil because there were ducts and steam all over the place and if you're familiar with the aesthetic of Brazil there are ducts with a D-U-C-T um, all over the place um, so we're, we're in the basement of some sort of apartment complex or something and this is Robin Williams' home and uh, <laughs> I, I like their initial exchange because Robin Williams is definitely difficult to get a read on at this point he is all over the fucking place but like one yeah. of the first exchanges of dialogue he has with Jeff Bridges here is the two of them going back and forth going what 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 where what what <laughs> and it just keeps like snapping back and forth between the two of them <laughs> i like the cluttered detail of his uh of his little his little apartment i guess his basement um so he thinks he's a knight uh not quite like uh don quixote uh, but he thinks he's a, a knight of some kind and if you notice like all the like all the stuff hanging up he's got like a makeshift mace uh but it's like really shitty uh, his sword what's his sword made of is it like like it's the, part of a ford truck it's yeah like probably the bumper or something yeah i mean this this thing kind of goes on for a while it, it takes a little while to get through here um but we learned that robin williams is not or perry his name is perry uh yes. he's not all there and he seems to need jeff bridges help uh jack's help yeah, uh, he he refers to Jack as like he. So he's he comes across as kind of schizophrenic in the sense that he sees like floating fat people. Yeah, <laughs> um, and he talks to them at least when we first meet him. Thankfully, this doesn't carry on throughout the rest of the movie. Like, th- I'm not gonna lie, this sequence had me worried because yeah. Robin Williams. If you ask him to play manic, yeah, he's gonna give you manic, yeah. um, and he is doing that. He will give you manic. Yeah, and it was worrying me because I was afraid that this was going to be his performance throughout the entire movie because this mm-hmm. was a lot all at once. Um, but again, like you said, if you put yourself in Jack's shoes, it works. Yeah. Provided it's only this scene because <laughs> yeah. he's much more lucid from here on out. But in this scene, he's all over the fucking place. But yeah, at some point, like mid sentence, he cuts himself off and he has a little bit of an outburst yelling at these floating fat people that only he can see uh, he has a can of bug spray that he's threatening them with and uh jack tries to crawl back into like a shrine that he's built and i noticed right away that like perry yanks him out of there it's like the one thing he doesn't want him to do when he's down there everything else he seems perfectly fine with um but yeah the, the music adds to the atmosphere it's very off kilter um and Perry refers to himself as the janitor of God. And he explains the first time he starts seeing the floating fat people. Um, and we get an extended moment here where Robin Williams gets to pantomime taking a very large, very satisfying shit. Um, so I guess he was in the middle of one of those and that's when he started seeing people. Um, and yeah, this entire conversation is shot in low Dutch angles. Um, so again it it lends itself very well to the off-kilter atmosphere um and this is where we get the introduction of the holy grail 
Um, so Perry shows Jack a photo of what he believes to be the Holy Grail, and he says, it's right here in New York. I know exactly where to find it. I need it for some reason. And he's, con- he's thoroughly convinced that Jack is going to be the one to help him. Um, but Jack is, you know, definitely weirded out by this, and he excuses himself. On his way out, though, he encounters the landlord of the building, uh, who is a little worried that he was down there. <laughs> um, yeah. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Um, and then we get some exposition here from the landlord explaining that uh, he lets Perry stay in the basement free of free of charge because of, quote, the tragedy. Um, and then he explains to Jack and us, the audience, uh, that Perry's wife was shot at the Babbitts incident. So she was at the restaurant that Edwin had shot up, and she died there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we definitely realize what this means for Jack because we see like a extended close up of his face and it's just like, Oh fuck. Uh, he was not in a good headspace before. He is certainly not now. Um, but yeah, we go back to the video spot and, uh, Jack is having a conversation with Anne and, <laughs> uh, this, this introduces, uh, like the whole thesis for her character, which I really loved is, um, they, they have a bit of a spat and, uh, she uses the phrase, I love you. What are you going to do? <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, that's so great. Because, like, that's the, that sums up their relationship 100%. It's that, like, she doesn't need a justification. She doesn't even need him to be good. It's just, like, on a chemical level or something, she just cares about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she just, like, wants him to be around and, like, doesn't... She doesn't even really 100% need him to love her back. It's just that's how she feels, and God damn it, that's, that's how it's going to be. Um, by the way, she has cheetah print pants. Yes. <laughs> she dresses like Janice from Friends. She dresses like, uh, what was the mom from uh, Married with Children? Oh, I know you're talking about. Uh, I can't think of her name. <laughs> yeah, Peggy! I mean, Kate, yeah, Peggy. Katie Segal, or Segal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Peg. Anyway. Peggy! um but yeah she has a line here that she thinks that men are fashioned from the devil like as in created in the image of the devil and women are created in the image of god um and she she has a big explanation for this but at the end of the day she says like her belief is that that's that's why men and women are different is because they're like the way things are meant to be is they're supposed to come together and in her own words work it out (laughs) <laughs> i like her she's passionate <laughs> and then they fuck on the table yeah despite him protesting repeatedly because he's like i just spent like a night in the in a boiler room with a homeless man she's like i don't care I she does you. not care do? yeah she does not care she's got those cheetah pants god damn it she doesn't wear those for herself she wears those for her for, for a guy <laughs> um but yeah jack returns to visit perry and uh like you had said it's a small but incredibly detailed and well textured set and uh he goes into the shrine and uh he finds gobstoppers and soy sauce in there yeah (laughs) and a landlord stops him and nothing really comes of this but uh what do we have here oh uh what comes of it is the landlord gives gives jack uh perry's real name it's henry sagan apparently um and then he exposits again this this character this landlord exists only to inform us the viewer of of important things to push the plot forward um he tells us that uh 
Perry was in a mental hospital and didn't speak for a year following the death of his wife. And uh, when we're digging through his shrine here, uh, we find sort of some sort of manuscript titled The Fisher King. And uh, we see some photos of Perry's wedding day. So we're, we're getting some background on a character that we only barely know at this point. Um, but yeah, Kyle, this is where we go back to the video spot. And uh, Jeff Bridges kind of starts to... It starts to dawn on him that maybe it's a good idea for him to try to make things right, I guess. But he's mm-hmm. he's a little slow on the uptake. <laughs> um, uh, he has a line here, I feel like I'm a magnet, but I attract shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he has a line here that I think is uh, is very uh, relevant to today. It's, um, I wish there was some way I could just pay the fine and go home. I was like, that sums up so many millennials, like 100%. Yeah. It's like, wouldn't it be so easy if we could all just throw money at something and it would just not be a problem anymore? It's like, mm, no, it's not how it works. If you piss people off, they're they're going to hate you no matter what. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kyle, where do we go from here? Um, yeah, he somehow just kind of finds him i don't know how like i don't know how uh jack finds perry but he just kind of finds him um standing on like squatting down on top of a car outside of a what looks like just a giant office building (laughs) i don't know what he was doing exactly but it's just like oh there you are and um he's looking at the clock uh there's a giant clock and he's just like it's about to be noon exactly when it hits noon he jumps off the car real quick and then he's like like got himself up against the wall, like uh, like hiding basically, and he's like looking around the corner and he's waiting for somebody, uh, and that is Honey Bunny from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, I was wondering where I recognized her from because I yeah. didn't know who she was. I'm like, is that Honey Bunny? I'm like, I think that's Honey Bunny. Um, <laughs> she doesn't have a name in the movie. That's her. <laughs> that's her name in there is a Honey Bunny. But yeah, so he's apparently stalking this lady. Um, I thought that the uh, the stuff in the shrine. The uh, the gobstopper or the, the was it gobstoppers or jawbreakers whatever it was jawbreakers and soy sauce yeah I thought that was from the restaurant his wife was killed in I'm like oh that's a bit morose like that yeah I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't do that um, but apparently he follows her every day the same time yeah uh, he knows her routine hence him waiting for the stroke of noon um, and she has a very set routine by the way random little person in the scene that was kind of cool uh <laughs> i thought the same thing and i'm like that wasn't random that was just a little person walking by <laughs> i i know what you mean but like your your mind goes to random but i'm like but it's not random it's just there there are little people yeah but it's just one of those things that's like um same thing happened in uh what was it lord of illusion where there's uh what's his face i don't i don't remember the actor's name but he played mickey on seinfeld the, the little, little person that was in many episodes of Seinfeld. Yeah. He plays a uh, crime scene photographer with no lines in, in Lord of Illusion. He's just there. Just it's there. like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> like, you, get, you gave Mickey work. I like Mickey. <laughs> Mickey should be in more movies, goddammit. <laughs> uh, Johnny Depp's character is a dick to a little person in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, he, like, brings the phone over, and then he has coins, and he just throws them on the ground. I'm like, ooh, that was fucked up. I don't know what that was all about, but... Yeah, maybe well, it, it comes up in his movies. I don't know. I don't know. I, who knows? But it's just something you notice where it's like, oh, hey, that's a little person. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, 
yeah we we go on a little adventure here uh, both jack and perry um and it's funny here because jack keeps continually trying to pay perry off Mm -hmm. (laughs) he keeps like reaching into his pockets and he starts saying the words that we've we've all said at one time or another to like get away from somebody um and perry is just completely ignoring him Um, but we go on this little adventure following this woman around this woman with this mushroom haircut um and he explains to us that yeah she does the same thing every day at the same time uh she buys a book every two days uh, she gets dumplings at such and such Chinese restaurant because it's her favorite. She gets a job breaker on her way back to work. And Perry explains that he is in love with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and like borderline like mid-sentence, he runs off and he's like, ooh, a cooler. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I have it written down in my notes too. Ooh, a cooler. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. The, the timing on it's very funny. <laughs> I think that was ad-libbed. I, I, I mean, the cooler is there, but I just feel like it's too perfect. Ooh, a cooler. Oh, well, one thing that reminded me of was, uh, what's his face, Ludlow from uh, The Lost World Jurassic Park. Uh, there's that sequence where he uh, he introduces the velociraptors to the film. Mm-hmm. In mid-sentence, he goes, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> yeah. And he picks up like a the canteen flask. or something. It's a flask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a weird acting decision. <laughs> yeah, it was. But I, I forget, I think I got this from like a, interview with natalie portman or something that she was talking about like acting like the process of acting at least her own anyway and she was talking about the idea of um props and environment being extraordinarily useful tools to an actor Mm -hmm. because basically you walk into a room and you immediately your eyes start searching for like what can i what can i use to to evoke character and having a prop is is a shortcut a hundred percent um and so something like that, I could see that being like, oh, this is a tool that I can use to create a moment of character. Um, it's strange, but it works. Oh, ooh, I remember. A cooler. <laughs> ooh, a cooler. I remember what I was going to say now was that. Uh, so I was trying to. I had to explain this to Steph. She watched like the last 20 minutes with me and I had to catch her up. And he's like, so he's stalking her. And she's like, ew. I'm like, it's not a creepy stalking necessarily. It's kind of endearing. The, the, the film the film means for it to be endearing. Like, it's not supposed to be creepy stalking. But I think most stalking is creepy. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'd be hard-pressed to find a woman who didn't find this creepy. Yeah, it's Um, a little creepy. Like, nowadays with the internet and stuff, it's too real. Like, it's too easy for for people with these sort of intentions, however well-intentioned they are, um, to to do. (laughs) Like, I think it puts everyone on edge. Like, it makes people extra cautious. Like, I, I have lady friends who make it a point to have basically zero internet presence because of things like this. I have zero internet presence. And I've told you not to use my last name on the podcast as well. I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think people figure out how quickly they're stalking when they can't find me on uh, any kind of social media platform. Because you're like, oh, he's not on here. Well, he's not on here. He's not on here. And like, how many places are you going to look? I'm not on any of them. It's like, not it's like the fact that you checked all those places makes me a little worried. <laughs> I said it at work one day. Uh, I made a joke about like TikTok or something. He's like, yeah, follow me on TikTok. He's like, you want TikTok? And I say no and then somebody else that was working there goes no he's not on any social media platform i'm like how'd you know that yeah how would you know that (laughs) i never said that (laughs) um but yeah jack ends up giving 
well, he, he has to like bump up the figure a little bit because he's not sure if this is really going to work or not. It's not. Um, it's not. He goes from 50 to $70 <laughs> and pocket change. I thought this was pretty funny too. It the, was the, it was very funny. I think this is where the movie actually gets going because it's kind of yes. slow up until this point. This is where we get going. Yeah, this is where we have an actual movie with an actual story. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Jack gives Perry like all the money he has in his pocket. So it's yeah. about $70 and change. And Perry immediately turns around, and there's another there's another homeless gentleman yelling into a phone, sell, sell, sell. And then Perry immediately just hands him the water yeah, cash. just gives him the money. And the yeah. guy starts yelling, buy, buy, buy. <laughs> so obviously, like, he's he thinks he's in the stock market, or maybe he was in the stock market. Um, but yeah, Jack witnesses this, and he's not having it. He's hey, like, God man. damn it. Yeah, he goes, hey, man. He goes Lebowski. I'm like, God damn it, Walter. Yeah. <laughs> this will not stand, this man. Will not, this aggression will not stand, man. Uh, so yeah, somehow, uh, somehow, uh, Perry convinces Jack to come with him to something that looks like a castle embedded in the in New York City. Um, I don't know what It's a real building. building. Yeah, I, I could tell that. I could tell it wasn't a set, but do you know the name of it or anything? Uh, it's uh, Keep talking. I will find it real quick. Sure. Anyway, uh, this building belongs to, like, Jack had told us earlier in the film that it belongs to somebody by the name of Langdon Carmichael, who's apparently a billionaire. Um, and Perry is thoroughly convinced that the Grail is housed within this this castle in New York. Um, and we have a dialogue exchange as we're overlooking the, the castle here. It's so Hunter Perry, College Perry. High School in Ma- on Madison Avenue. Okay. Um, but yeah, we have an exchange of dialogue here where uh, Perry, uh, he says, what were the Crusades? The Pope's publicity stunt? And it's like, oh, kind of. Yeah, they were. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of exactly what they were. But um, And then uh, we get some... Not not more usage of the the hard f word, but um, just some allusions to that. Um, basically, uh, when Jack agrees to help Perry, um, he does actually agree here. Um, Perry starts yelling out to everyone that can hear it, like within a mile radius. Like I, I love this guy, and then he he like tries to embrace Jack, and Jack pushes him away, and he says, and. Robin Williams does a thing where he pulls back and he says, oh, men with men. And then he starts yelling even louder. I love this guy. And it's just a reminder that it's 1991. This this was, you know, a yeah. thing. Um, and yeah, uh, Perry is thoroughly convinced that the Grail is in this castle. And uh, Jack is trying to push back pretty hard on this. He's like, I oh, I don't know if it's real and i wouldn't expect it to be in there either he tries to basically wake a sleeping uh, person who's sleepwalking he tries to tell him that you're like this because your like wife died or something like that and i uh perry freaks out immediately like he starts like having a fit and you can tell like he's this is not something he wants to discuss with him uh and he starts like rolling around on the ground screaming and convulsing and uh he mentioned something about um a uh, a knight of some kind or some some kind of something coming after him and there's an illustration of it down in his uh basement yeah uh he doesn't i don't think he gives it a name during that introductory scene but as he's telling jack about the grail for the first time he does say that there's someone or something out there that's preventing him from doing it by himself and mm-hmm. like you said there is like a drawing of it it's it's like a 
interesting mosaic where it's a mm-hmm. mixed media piece with like a photo for a head and then a red like paint outline of its body it's really cool and it's about to get way cooler um mm-hmm. because we get a shot from perry's perspective as he's rolling around in the street by the way also i noticed a theme um a definite theme that this was like me first noticing it and then it gets confirmed several times later in the film um this homeless man rolling around in the middle of the streets of new york not a single person around gives a shit no nobody looks over like we even get a shot from his perspective of people walking by and no one's even bothering to look his way Um, we interview our homeless people in seattle i gotta send you a video somebody interviewed a guy down at that mcdonald's on second and pine or pike oh pine uh dude (laughs) this guy's out of his fucking mind And he's like, do you do you take methods every day, man? Most days, yeah. Uh, it's pretty funny. I'll, I'll just send you the video. Hey, that that sounds like Seattle. That yeah. sounds like that sounds like my hometown for fucking sure. Um, but we get a shot from Perry's perspective, and we get the introduction of the Red Knight. And holy shit, this thing is magnificent. Um, I love the look of this. It's incredible. Um, so what we have is some sort of apparition that clearly only Perry can see, but it's. It is a a knight on horseback, um, but it's adorned in what looks like a, it's like burnt red rags, kind of. Yeah. And it, and it has like spines protruding from its back that look like a standard or a banner, but again, it's all frayed fabric, and it looks it all looks singed and like just awful. And there's jets of flame coming from it, from directly behind it. It looks menacing and just fucking awesome. Um. Yeah, flame spewing from the nostrils of the, of the horse and everything. Uh, and the score starts getting downright operatic here, and I couldn't help but be reminded of the fantasy sequences in Brazil, um, where similarly we have a character who is seeing fantastical visions and you know going on fantastical adventures while still trying to live in the real world. Um, and then Perry gets his wits about him, kind of, and uh, he starts chasing the knight <laughs> into, I think, Central Park here. And he's uh, like, he's, he hears a woman screaming. Like, there's a woman screaming. Like he, um, yeah. I've said this is all like mostly on on location. He's in um, he's in Central Park, and I recognize this as the place where Devin Banks crawls out of in the afternoon and Thirty Rock when he's supposed to be at a uh, corporate meeting, but he was having sex with two men uh, <laughs> in the middle of the day. <laughs> So then this rock comes up in movies and stuff, and like Banks was back there, um, and that's actually something that comes up uh, here. I think that's kind of the woman screaming. We find out, and I know you want to talk about. There's a certain shot that's um, Perry's chasing after, trying to find where this woman is at, and mm-hmm. um, uh, Jack is following him, and we get uh, we see Jack running in the distance like coming towards the camera and then Robin Williams just pops up right in front of the camera. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. I wasn't, thank I wasn't. you for pointing that out. Cause I definitely wrote that down. It's an awesome little shot. Yeah. Um, and this whole chase sequence has an intensity and like an energy to it. That's really fun. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Jack is trying his best to keep up with Perry and you know, Robin Williams, he, he has a bicycle under him. Like he, he's like, this is an energetic little man. He can move fast when he wants to. <laughs> I think someone told me he wrestled, uh, wrestled one twelve in high school. Uh, I think I heard that directly from the horse's mouth at some point, like in an interview. Um, okay. And 
I know he was an avid cyclist for most most of his life too. So he's got okay. cardio. Like he's, he's got oh, he's he, got a motor. Well, he's got low center of gravity too, so he can. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He can do a backflip if he wants to. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the chase concludes, and it's a really funny beat here, where uh, basically Perry is utterly manic, and Jack is chasing after him, and then we get a POV shot of Jack crawling up this this thirty rock rock, <laughs> and all of a sudden. Perry is just utterly serene, and he's cross-legged sitting on this rock overlooking the park. And and Jack is just like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> because remember, he can't see the night. He doesn't know why we're running through the park. <laughs> but it uh, needs to be said, Perry does mention that uh, the Red Knight is afraid of Jack, uh, which is why he starts chasing after it. Um but yeah, it's it's here that uh, Jack is like exasperated, laying on his back. Um, he smokes, he drinks. He's Jeff Bridges. He he's not built to move fast. Uh, <laughs> um, but Perry overhears what he believes is a woman's voice screaming for help. And I wrote in my notes here, uh, oof, only Williams could talk that fucking fast. Because uh, he, if you ever seen the commercials for the for Micro Machines back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, was it John Mashita, I think, the fast-talking micro-machines guy? Yeah. Um, yeah, Robin Williams can do that, and he does that here, where he says some nightly shit before he takes off uh, to go rescue somebody. And uh, we come across a, a very odd scene where there's a couple of people on horseback who apparently trampled a man um, who is laying in the dirt. And uh, did you recognize this guy? Yeah, it's Michael Jeter. Yeah, I didn't know his name until I looked it up uh, while I was watching the movie. But he's one of those that guys that you've seen him tons of times, like Jurassic Park three and uh, Green Tango Mile and Cash and Green Mile. He's he's a character actor that he's always welcome and he always gives you something different. He's and dead. This is, he's very good and he's very different in this one. Um, but do you want to describe what happens in the scene, Kyle? Yeah, so he sound he sounded like a woman, but it's Michael Jeter, and uh, <laughs> he is. This is what I was saying. Like, I think he was. I don't know if he's homeless, but there. I mean, there's. You know, back in the day, men had to go to like, like public parks and bathrooms to hook up, um, and I don't know if that was still happening at this time. Uh, I'm assuming it. It might still. It might have still been happening in the early '90s. Um, but that's what I thought was happening. Like he had just been there that night and like he was, he had been stuck there for hours. Um, that's what I, that's what I thought. But, um, yeah, he's stuck and they end up (laughs) like Robin Williams is trying to help him and he's not really, he's kind of like, just like not really wanting the help. But then he, uh, and then pair, then Jack comes up and then he like puts his hand out for him to help him. Well, Jeff Bridges was a dime piece back in the yeah, day. Yeah, he was a good-looking dude, yeah. He just was like, oh, yes, actually, could you help me? Um, and I take him to a free clinic, it looks like. it's it. There's a lot of coughing. This entire, this location, all the actors in this scene, everything about it made me think of Brazil. 12, that made me think of 12 Monkeys. I think it's probably the same. It might be the I same mean, it's, a, it's from the same mind. Um, yeah. And it has that feel where, again, it needs to be said... This this man apparently was hit by a fucking horse, um, which is why he's hurt. Um, the people riding those horses didn't even dismount. 
<laughs> well, that, they're they're like equestrians. Like it's not just people riding horses. People don't ride horses in Central Park unless I think you're a, a cop. Maybe there is a rule that you can ride horses in Central Park. I don't know. Um, but they're but they're, it's a certain look that they have. They look like rich people. Oh, they have the the hat. You know? Yeah, <laughs> they, their horses jump. <laughs> they don't just gallop. Um, but yeah, it needs to be said that those people didn't even stop to help at all. They yeah. acted like he wasn't even there, um, which, again, is a theme in the movie. Um, but yeah, this hospital is dingy and messy and just awful. Like It looks like an utterly inhospitable place. Uh, it's full of indigence, people with like open head wounds. Um, and I know, <laughs> I noticed there's one guy that Robin Williams has like a couple of lines he tosses at that his entire role consists of being catatonic with his head tilted. Mm-hmm. But he's positioned directly in front of the camera in such a way that he occupies like half the frame. And I was like, oh, hey, that's the guy from The Lawnmower Man, <laughs> which is another movie that, god damn it, for for uh, Guilty Pleasures Month, that's another movie I should have picked instead of mm-hmm. Light. Because The Lawnmower Man sucks, but you had to have been there. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we have a close up of a greasy woman just rambling. She's utterly incoherent. I have no idea what, what she's saying here, but point is everyone everyone who's waiting for treatment here is you know people pushed off to the side of society in some fashion and uh jeff bridges is stuck holding uh michael jeter who has a lot to say (laughs) um and at some point um jack like catches a goal in the one-sided conversation he has an interesting question here he says did you lose your mind all of a sudden or was it a slow, gradual process? <laughs> and, you know, that is kind of the right question to ask because uh, Michael Jeter gets somewhat lucid here for a second, and he explains that, like, the way he phrases it is, like, everybody, like, all of his friends died. Um, he doesn't say how, but he just says all of his friends died, and um, if Robin Williams' character is anything to go by, uh, you know, a massive sudden loss is enough to make you a little crazy um but it's something that obviously like it's more than likely the root of however this person got to where they are now um and then the scene concludes in the strangest way Uh, a pizza guy shows up (laughs) and then we get an overhead shot that probably took an entire day to shut to set up which is probably why producers utterly hate Terry Gilliam. <laughs> and everybody rushes towards the pizza man, and that's the end of the scene. Then we cut to Grand Central Station. Yeah. Um, apparently, uh, this the Grand Central Station scene was filmed. Uh, they shut it down, the, the terminal down at 8 p.m. Uh, until like 5.30 a.m. So this was all shot at night, and the, the light that's showing through there is actually like, that was added and to make it seem like it was uh, later in the day. It's an incredible sequence. Uh, Like it's incredibly well staged and on a, a, you know, just purely aesthetic level. It's like, I don't care what movie this finds a way into. Mm -hmm. It needs to be in a movie because it's just an incredible sequence. I think it what makes it, it's what makes this film kind of charming at the end. It's like it, it kind of turns into it's, it's dual. It's a little bit of a love story. It's also kind of like a friendship story, like not necessarily a friendship story, like a redemption story, uh, doing something nice for somebody like this in this, in this kind of position. Um, 
but yeah, we we go to Grand Central Station. I there I had a few laughs here. Um, they're waiting. I think they're waiting for uh, Honey Bunny. She should be coming through there sometime. Yeah, speaking of waiting, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you want to get into that, Kyle? <laughs> uh, yeah, so somebody walks by, and uh, Robin Williams just has a cup of coffee, and somebody drops a quarter <laughs> into his coffee, which I thought was funny. But um, fucking Tom Waits is in this. I'm like, this isn't even a Jim Jarmusch movie. Uh, he was in the, the Imaginarium of Parnassus or whatever the fuck. Um, he was also in Mystery Men, so yeah. let's not go nuts here. <laughs> so like... he, he was in Seven Psychopaths. Uh, Tom Waits is in a lot of stuff. Um but yeah, he's uh, he's playing a, a a vet who's lost his legs, and he tell he tells some kind of anecdote here. I can't remember what the punchline or point of it was. Uh, do you remember? Mm, I don't I don't remember it exactly, but I I wrote down a couple of choice lines here. Uh, he has where Jeff Bridges notes that somebody dropped some change that didn't quite make it into the cup. Yeah, he does. He just looks at it. <laughs> yeah, and and he says to Tom Waits, he says, "He didn't even look at you." And Tom Waits says in response, "He's paying so he doesn't have to look." Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, "Yeah, that sounds like a lot of people out there. That's like you have a guilty conscience about things, but you just kind of want to put your blinders on and keep walking." Yeah, and you know, throw your money and run at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, he's basically saying that like he's in, his character is a hundred percent lucid. He doesn't have. He doesn't seem to have any sort of mental hangups or anything, but he refers to himself as some sort of like moral stoplight or something. <laughs> uh, I didn't quite get the analogy, but uh, it was it was an, an interesting little scene that precedes, you know, a beautiful little scene. Um, so a wall of nuns uh, precede uh, the approach of our uh, mushroom r- mushroom-haired lady that. Uh, that Robin Williams is in love with. And as soon as she comes into Grand Central Station, he lights up, and so does the rest of the building. And uh, everyone, like all the extras, and it needs to be said, this this is packed with extras. Like, there's hundreds of people here. 400. There's 400 extras. It looks it. And it, it, it was money well spent. Um, everyone here begins to waltz together. And the, the soundtrack kicks in, and we get this lovely little sequence where all of Grand Central Station turns into a ballroom. And uh, like you said, there's like a light fixture placed in the center of the building. Look, it's like the equivalent of like a disco ball. So it's shooting beams of light all over the place. It looks lovely, has kind of an amber tone to it. And uh, we even get like a really neat overhead shot that shows the the utter scale of it. It's like wow, that's a lot yeah. of people, and they're all dancing, and it's it's great. And uh, Rum Williams is kind of like following this woman through the crowd, and they're the only two people not dancing. But mm-hmm. it, it puts you in his in his head. Where it's yeah. Like, this is this is how he's imagining things. It's really cool. It's cute. He's he's like in, in real life. He's like bumping into people, but to him, he's so he, he's so elated that he's just walking through. It just seems like they're just dancing right by him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I I think what also kind of makes it charming is that the extras aren't like we've seen dancers in uh, movies that do like like they'll just stop and have a, a musical number like the dance number these aren't dancers these no. are like no. just, <laughs> these are just extras and it looks like bumbly like some of them are kind of like messed up a little bit you've got a few like guy on guy and it, it, yeah, it seems yeah. like they're kind of I know it's like a, a cop and like uh, like a two rabbi burly, maybe. two burly guys yeah, yeah. and then yeah there's a rabbi in there too yeah, and they're just kind of distancing themselves a little bit and other people look good doing it other people don't look so good but there's 
there's a continuity, like the, there's some kind of um, order to it. Um, but I, I think that makes it a little bit nicer. Is that it? It's not perfect. It, it's a little. It's a little messed up. I like that. Yeah, it it reminds you that this is it is a fantasy, but at the same time, like these are supposed to be the same people that he's seeing as he's passing them by. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and just like that, she she leaves the station, and Robin Williams loses track of her, and then everything instantly goes back goes to right normal. Back. Um, and there's a nothing little scene where Anne is rehearsing her breakup lines to an empty seat. This is uh, funny. Yeah, and she <laughs> she she she's, has a whole spiel like of things that she probably should be saying to Jack, mm. but doesn't because she lo- she loves him. What are you gonna she's, do? She's having the You're shower a waste argument. of good lasagna. <laughs> I bet she makes a mean lasagna, dude. She's she's smoking cigarettes inside, drinking red wine. I'm like, God damn it, what a time to be alive! And your in your apartment above your video rental store. That's that's the dream. She's living the dream. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in like 2020, it's like, man, you do realize this is it. It like, never gets any better than what you're doing right now. <laughs> you can afford that apartment. And you can smoke inside of it right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we cut to night in the park. And uh, Robin Williams, Perry, uh, he starts stripping naked. Yeah, and he he's pretty excited about it too. And uh, Jack is still with him, and he has a pretty funny line here. Nobody's allowed to be naked in the park. It's too midwestern. <laughs> <laughs> what he's gonna I don't do? Know what the, that, I don't know what the, that means, but it's just funny sounding. He's gonna do like cloud, like he's gonna do the cloud game. I don't know if cloud that's re- bursting. He calls yeah. it. But so you have to be naked he, for it. Yes, you have to be naked for it. And that does uh, make I, I never heard that I, before. I can honestly say. I have now officially seen Robin Williams' junk. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> so that's something you, if you're interested in seeing, you can see it in this movie. Yeah, I was watching him like, he's not going to show it. I'm like, he's going to show it. It's fine. <laughs> um, he doesn't, uh, uh, he's very hairy, but he's got a good build. Like, he's like he's like short, but he looks kind of, like, he looks fit. Uh, I mean, there there is a rounded curve to that butt. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. saying the top the top of that butt is, is rounded. <laughs> you can you, eat a bowl re- cereal off of it. <laughs> that doesn't happen naturally. That requires some effort. So good, uh, good job. In 1991, he was doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is where we get the Fisher King story. Uh, it sounds like a person. Fisher King. It sounds like a like some asshole director or writer or something. River Phoenix. Yeah. Fisher King. Fisher King is right there. <laughs> yeah, he tells him the story. I don't even remember what the story is, but uh, it resonates somehow with uh, with Jack. Um, uh, yeah, the story is it's very long winded, so I'll try to keep it very short. Um, basically, there's a like a young man who is being groomed to be king somehow and he is offered the holy grail like straight up but he somehow having it right in front of his face doesn't see its value and because of that it rejects him when he reaches for it and it ends up burning him um and he goes throughout his entire life wounded and cynical he's jack (laughs) um and anyway this uh this cynical young man turns into a cynical old man with a wound who is now king and uh some some fool comes to his court uh, like a literal fool um and he offers the king like a glass of water which just happens to be exactly what he needs in that moment and he accepts it and uh yeah uh he discovers that the glass that he's drinking from is in fact the grail that rejected him in his youth 
So it's like, oh, he was right there in front of you the whole time. Um, and yeah, Perry begins to have a moment of clarity here while he's laying on his back naked in the park um, regarding his past. Like he mentions the school that he used to work at. Apparently he, he was like a history teacher or something. Mm-hmm. So he, he actually mentions the school's name like concretely. So I forget the name of it. But, um, but then he falls back on his vision of the Red Knight. And uh, he doesn't completely flip out here, but you can tell, like, whenever he starts to, like, push push that membrane, like, kind of try to get past that barrier of his past and his wife and stuff, that's when he starts to go dark on you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he doesn't flip out, but it it definitely touches on it a little bit. Well, we'll understand, like, having, like, we've, I've seen movies where, somebody has a significant other die in front of them and it, it affects them. But you're like, it shouldn't affect him this much. But when we see the actual, the, what actually happens, I'm like, oh, yeah. That, it's justified. <laughs> it is insane uh, what happens when we see that. Because um, it's almost comical, but it's not, it's not, a dark, it's like, like the end of uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or like the, it's kind of like what Tarantino does with violence, where it's like it's not funny, but it's so it. But it's there's like a, a, I don't know. It's like a dark humor to it as well. I don't know. There, it's something strange. It's I, I wish I, I wish we were having this conversation after I'd seen more of Terry Gilliam's films because um, I remember watching Brazil um, first time I saw it. I was in high school. That was actually a note that I, I remember taking was that every instance of violence in that movie is very visceral. Um, like every time there's a bombing in Brazil, mm-hmm. the aftermath of it is pretty intense mm-hmm. in an otherwise, you know, kind of goofy, odd film. And I don't know, maybe that's a Gilliam thing where like whenever there's going to be violence in my movies, it's going to be violent. <laughs> well, it's just, it's like an abrupt sh- like shift in tone. Um, the probably uh, Tarantino definitely has done like Inglorious Bastards is ripe with it. Like it, it happens quite a bit. Like Stiglitz, like putting his hand down the dude's mouth. Like, Oh fuck. Like that's, <laughs> that's pretty fucking brutal. But, um, Oh, what, what, what the director, well, with Tarantino, a lot of times it's like cathartic violence where it's like, something that you the audience kind of need in that mm-hmm. moment where it's like some of his movies get pretty bleak and intense at times and it's like when when awful shit stop starts happening to the people who kind of have it coming it's like a it's like a release you know? danny boyle does it i think probably the best where it's not funny and it it, it gets the it just stops the tone in the film like dead and it's in train spotting. I won't tell you what it is. Have you seen train spotting yet? I have not. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but when it happens, you're like, oh, fuck. Well, like, I mean, the we, beach had some of that too. Yeah, we were having a good time. We were having a great time, having a great time. And now this dude's missing most of his leg from a shark bite. Like, fuck. It just well, it completely changes the tone. I it, mean, Danny Boyle, I don't know exactly where he's from, but I mean, the troubles were definitely a thing in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And, you know that involved a lot of domestic terrorism and stuff and brazil definitely had a touch of that where it's like yeah this was a thing that a lot of the people watching it were actually going through at one point in their life but yeah i just don't know like it, it the way it's presented in this film when we get to it i'm like i just don't know how to describe it it's really difficult because it's brutal but at the same time it's comical and i don't know i think we'll we'll, we'll get to that though sorry uh, i lost track here 
Um, but yeah, Jeff, Jeff Bridges has a couple of funny lines here. Um, he protests a little bit about the idea of laying naked in the park. So he doesn't disrobe. No. Uh, Perry does, though. And uh, yes. he says, what if some homophobic jogger kills us to get back at his father? <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he just kind of like, I don't know. Talk, he's talking more to himself than anyone else, but he's laying next to Perry, who is naked, and he's, he just thinks to himself, he's like, I hate when they use the word partner. It's so insinuating. And I was like, mm. <laughs> well, wait, like, to, wait till the 2020s, dude. Exactly. But um, anyway, uh, Perry shares with us one line, though. He says, I, Jack is urging him to pursue mushroom-haired lady. Lydia. And, uh, yeah, we're about to learn her name, but yeah, her name is Lydia. And uh, Perry comes back sheepishly with, "I I can't ask her, Jack. I, I have to earn her." Mm-hmm. So he he's in his nightly mindset. Um, and then, he's like, "You don't have to do that." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's 1991. You don't have to do that, man. <laughs> um, but there's there's a funny little reference here to uh, Arthur, King Arthur, and Lady Guinevere. It's like which was a pairing that was not supposed to happen and didn't exactly go great for both of them. <laughs> but it's just a funny little thing that, like, uh, both parties pause for a second. It's like, that's a really bad example for the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> but um, it's just like a mutual acknowledgement of the humor that's in there. But, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> Jack sets to work. Um, he is he is gonna He is going to make this happen. He's going to make Perry make a move on Lydia. Um, so we get a sequence where he almost falls asleep standing up. <laughs> yeah, I I was getting close to that myself uh, the other day. We were walking. I was like, I was so exhausted. Like then we were flying back from Seattle, and I was just I like didn't sleep at all the night before. And I'm just like I'm literally like nodding off while we're walking. I'm I'm fucking exhausted. No, it was to Seattle because I didn't sleep. I slept for like three hours because we had to leave at two o'clock in the morning. So I slept for like two hours the night before. I slept zero on the flight there and it was a long long flight so we're like we're walking through the airport i'm like i was i I literally nodded off for a second walking my god i was tired (laughs) um but yeah jack gets his wits about him just in time to run in the door after lydia because he knows her routine because yeah perry taught it to him um and then we get a scene of him like digging through the phone book because apparently he got some information about her so he knows her name or something and he's got a plan He's trying to call Lydia at work, or at least leave a message for her. And mm. Anne walks in on him while he's making the phone call. What are you calling? What are you calling? What are you doing? <laughs> it's pretty fucking oh, funny. Geez, you're going to call her while I'm here? Like, God. Uh, yeah, she just gets mad. But uh, I love ex- how she dials, by the way. <laughs> um, he explains the situation um, to her. And uh, I guess the plan is they're going to set up a meet-cute. Uh but what they do is they do a radio show gag. Um, and it was very confusing as to what was happening in this scene. But because she was cause she was confused too. Um, I guess they, they get a hold of her and he's like, hey, this is blah, 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 blah at KEXP or whatever. And is that the radio station in Seattle, KEXP? I think it's one of them, yeah. Yeah, okay. Bad example. Um, W-I-K-Y. Um, <laughs> like... Uh, you're getting like a free membership to this video store. And she's like, but I didn't sign up for anything. He's like, doesn't matter. Uh, you're getting a free membership or whatever. Um, and she she buys it, apparently. Uh, she pushes the, back 
pretty harshly like she she's a very mousy very protective person like mm -hmm. her first she has a host of questions like who are you where are you calling me what credit card companies <laughs> it's like i don't win anything how could this happen and it's like okay <laughs> um so she does push back pretty hard and she ends up hanging up on them um so they have to get creative and oh, the way we do yeah. this is a pretty incredible sequence where this Michael is incredible Jeter, yes it, it, this is incredible michael jeter's got some fucking pipes man i was shot i was watching i'm like I was bad. I was I was kind of like checked out at this point. I'm like, okay, so they're gonna do the thing. I'm like, wait, what's he doing now? And I'm like, he's singing. <laughs> I'm like, he's singing. Like, it's incredible. Like, he's really good. Um, he's uh, he's putting on like an odd vo a voice. He's like a higher pitched voice here. He doesn't actually have a, his voice isn't actually this high pitched uh, when he's talking normally. At least in the movies I've seen him with. But he's kind of um, a little he, more effeminate. He naturally has a very squeaky voice. Um, I never noticed it. He. Well, I mean, he's a character actor that has a lot of flexibility in his repertoire. Um, he can do a very squeaky voice. He can he can be like he was in Jurassic Park three, where he's a little bit, you know, well, he's not much of a character, but he's nah, more, he dies more of quick. a dude's dude, I guess. He's butch, yeah. He's more butch there. In a Waterworld, he has like his pitch is way up. Oh, um, I forgot he's in Waterworld. He's annoying as fucking Waterworld. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think he was in The Shadow, also doing something similar. Um, Anyway, he's he's very flexible, and this is where he gets to show it, um, because he is in drag, and we're in an elevator. Uh, he and he and Jack, and by the way, Jack's T-shirt here—he's wearing like a Chinese baseball shirt. <laughs> oh, I didn't notice it. It's truly bizarre, but kind of cool looking. Um, it's kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like uh, Kurt Russell's tank top in Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> um, Hollow, which is, oh, fuck it. Oh, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> um. And then uh, we get this tracking shot following Michael Jeter through all the cubicles leading up to Lydia's desk. And he has a big handful of balloons. And like I said, he is in drag. He is in a dress. He's got a blonde wig. He is made the fuck up. If you don't know what Michael Jeter looks like, he is about 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, uh, he's really skinny here. Um, he has a big, bulbous nose. And he's got a... Doc What's the... The bad guy Dr. from Dr. Wiley. Dr. Wiley mustache, and he's had it in like every role I've seen him in. Uh, yeah. He's also gay. Oh, he was gay, by the way. I didn't. I didn't realize that uh, in real life. I I did not know that. But yeah, I just sure. I looked at. I'm like he died, and I looked at his Wikipedia. I'm like, oh, I didn't. I didn't realize that. And I'd forgotten about some of the choice gots in uh in uh, the Green Mile uh, that Percy throws at him. Um, so I'm like, he's played this character. He's played a character like this a couple times, um, a gay character. Um, but yeah, he. If you see a guy like this in drag, like it's striking. Like you're gonna, you're gonna recognize him. <laughs> he's gonna, I mean, he's gonna the Doctor Wiley out. mustache alone kind of like throws, <laughs> yeah. dispels any illusion that might be there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he uh, he starts belting, like <laughs> like he he belting. <laughs> And this this whole scene, like it's we get the entire song, which most of the lyrics seem like they were made up for the movie. Um, as far as I understand, he's doing like an Ethel Merman, um, which I'm mostly familiar with her because I've I've watched a lot of Seinfeld and she's brought up multiple times in the show. Mm. And you know I watched a lot of old Bugs Bunny cartoons. <laughs> um, but yeah, he is swinging for the fences with this song. Uh, he hops up on a desk at one point. 
and the staging of this is great like he's he's center frame most of the time uh all the sound drops out like the entire office just stops <laughs> and yeah i would stop it's just him singing um and yeah uh, everybody's just kind of shocked and lydia we keep cutting back to her and you can tell that like she's she she's down for this like she appreciates whatever the fuck gesture this is supposed to be so she appro- she ap- appreciates the performance and uh yeah long story short he hands over the balloons and uh the business card for the video spot and uh based on her reaction uh inst- like unlike the case with the phone call she, she is very much receptive to this um and then we cut to the video spot and Anne and jack are trying their best to clean up perry but they haven't bathed him and this is no. really bothering me yes yes he's... thank you he he is gross <laughs> like he looks yeah. gross yeah he looks hideous like he is just covered in a thick layer of muck um, I mean, Robin Williams already has hair all the way up to his wrists, mm-hmm. um, but there's also like dirt and just grease all up his arms. And they put a video spot T-shirt on him, and they're trying to pretend that he's an employee there. Um, and then Lydia shows up, and she is like backlit with like this angelic light. Um, and she has a line here that maybe it resonates with you, like maybe it means something to you. But they introduce her to Perry, and she says, "Oh, Perry, like Moses." And I have no idea what that means. I guess um, maybe just one name, like Cher, Moses, Perry. Like, she doesn't give him the last name. Like, she was just making oh, a joke. Oh, okay. I, I yeah. wasn't sure. It was like, Perry, Moses? Is that, is that from no. the Bible? Perry, <laughs> Moses. I Same amount of syllables. I mean, it's like, yeah, Leon, Cher, same difference. Madonna. <laughs> okay, I get Madonna. it. <laughs> Madonna. Madonna. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they start showing her around the store, or at least they try to, because she is very hung up on like, is it free? Is it free? Is it yeah. free? Do I have to pay? Um, and I'm so glad what happens later on in this movie when she and Anne have a one-on-one, because right off the bat, I was like, she's kind of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and Anne calls her on it. She does, she does in fact make it known that, you know, you're kind of difficult as a person. <laughs> and that's that's okay because that's you that's you um and yeah uh, they try to like push perry into interacting with her and i've i've unfortunately been in perry's shoes before this always sucks when you're being like almost like physically pushed to <laughs> to, to make oh, yeah. moves of some sort um and they're both incredibly awkward it needs to be said um in every situation we've seen lydia in up to this point she is incredibly clumsy um, and they both are in the sequence yeah. and she's looking for Ethel Merman because obviously she has that on her mind after that, after Michael Jeter's performance. Um, but they don't have any and she, she like overreacts to this. <laughs> like She almost throws a fit. Um, and Kyle, I don't know if this is just me um, noticing things that mean nothing, but this is something I, I really needed to point out because I thought it was really cool if I'm right. Um, when they're, rooting through the videos and stuff uh, a lot of them look like fictional titles for movies um, and one of them is called uh, if Iphigenia or Iphigenia mm. uh, which is from Greek mythology and is also like an alternate spelling for Mrs. Doubtfire's first name Iphigenia <laughs> uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Iphigenia Doubtfire <laughs> 
Um, so what I read actually on IMDb was that uh, all of the VHSs, uh, all the, the tapes in here were actually from this studio. So there are some real ones. I caught a couple of actual film names, like they were real films. So I'm not too sure if there's if there's fictional ones in there. Well, point is, like the connection there was undeniable for me. I was like, holy shit! <laughs> like in a few short years, he would be Euphigenia Doubtfire. Euphigenia Doubtfire. That's um, very possible. I don't know what studio this was, but um, I noticed the uh, red outline for all the VHS tapes. Um, I think it was the same studio that gave us Ghostbusters because mm-hmm. I remember that was like a thing for that studio's uh, home video releases. Um, but yeah, anyway. Wait, uh, what? What? Oh, never mind. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> it said the film includes the the film cast includes three Oscar winners: Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges, and Mercedes Rule. I'm like, for this? And like, no, no, no. Just include they they have Oscars. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, anyway, um, so we we go over like a negotiation here with Lydia, and basically we're trying to get Perry more FaceTime with her. Um, so before she leaves, uh, she notes that Anne has nice fingernail paint. It has stars on them that she likes. It's like an innocuous little statement, but they parlay that into like, kind of like twisting her arm into coming back to the store so Anne can paint her nails for a, for a small fee. I'm sorry, Lydia, uh, the woman who played her, uh, Mercedes Rule, she did win an Oscar for this. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised. I, I think the Academy has a soft spot for this because, I mean... Uh, Roger Ebert does not. No, uh, Moonlighting. You know, Nick Cage and, and Cher, that was a big hit. Moonlight, um, uh, Moonlighting? Moonstruck. Moonstruck, sorry. Uh, the other one was Bruce Willis, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Moonstruck. I've seen Moonstruck, but... I've never um, seen it. Is that where she slaps it, him? Snap out of it! It's just a really Italian movie. Like, oh, really? I'm I mean, fine. If you've had interactions with Italian people, it's like, <laughs> big fucking deal. <laughs> I've seen um, movies. Or just Mediterranean people in general. It's just like, okay, big fucking deal. I've seen this. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, that was a huge hit. And then don't forget uh, my cousin Vinny, Marissa Tomei, won an Oscar for that, too. Yeah, but didn't Jack Palance uh, read the wrong name or something like that? Wasn't that oh, the, the oh, thing? I don't know, but the point is she still got it. So, I think like, I think Jack Palance just read the wrong name. I think that was the, the theory behind that. Uh, well, either way, um, I'm pretty sure the Academy has a soft spot for this particular type of performance. I do, too. <laughs> but not to the point of giving out Oscars, though. Um, anyway, uh, cut to the evening, and we have a lovely amber tone in the in the apartment now above the video spot, and uh, we're feeding Perry. And I don't know what it is about movies, but like anytime you see people eat on camera, it just always looks really icky, especially I when they're greasy and you know covered in hair. Matilda ruined uh, chocolate cake with chocolate frosting for me because that fat kid has to eat that entire cake. I cannot, I can't even look at that cake. If I see him, I will not eat that. I can smell that fucking kid when I watch that movie. <laughs> he looks disgusting. Um, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I had the exact same reaction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Miss Trunchbull's all sweaty and shit. Ugh, God. Yeah, I mean, cinematography is kind of similar to this one in some ways. A lot of, a lot of cameras being 
rammed up in people's nostrils. Was that a Danny um, DeVito joint? Yes, it was. Um, Good job. Again, I think he's a terrific director. Him and Ben Stiller. Uh, he's terrific at everything. I don't. Uh, does he do anything bad? Which Danny DeVito? Danny DeVito. Um, I think uh, Death to Smoochie was mixed reviews across the board. <laughs> yeah. I love it, but I, know. I, I don't think the critics liked it very much. Um, anyway, we're feeding Perry, and he's he's eaten, and uh, there's a fun interplay going on here where, where Jack is in the closet like trying to find a suit for Perry um, for the evening, and uh, Anne is kind of shit-talking him while, <laughs> like, while he can very clearly hear everything she's saying. Yeah. And then Perry kind of like rallies behind her. He's like, yeah, you're right. I just met you, but you're right. Um, but then he pushes it too far and he starts to get weird and starts to offer to, to bang her on the table. Yeah, and she's like, Jack, Jack. <laughs> well, it's, it's really funny because there's like 30 seconds where she's like, I like this guy. And then she's like, I'm really afraid of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like he just pushes it a little bit too far. But if he had just held back a little, she would love him. Um. But yeah, uh, Lydia returns in the evening, and uh, we keep cross-cutting back and forth between her and Anne together. Uh, we're having a nail-painting party uh, for money. <laughs> and we keep cross-cutting back and forth between that and uh, Jack like pampering Perry, like getting him ready for date night. So he like, mm-hmm. does the mud on the face. And there's a weird little jump cut here where he puts some tea bags on his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, I, I've, I've heard of that. Yeah, I always thought it was cucumbers, but maybe that's maybe that's cucumbers or tea bags. I think tea bags are supposed to stop the pu- the puffiness or whatever. Hmm. Um, uh, he puts this suit on him, and because it it's you know it's I'm guessing it's Jack's suit. Uh, it's way too long for Robin Williams to wear, so he's stapling the bottom. I, I love that detail where he doesn't <laughs> have so time good. to hem it, so he staples. Yeah, he just staples it. <laughs> And it's all rumpled and awful looking, but you know we're trying our best here. God damn it! <laughs> yeah, um, this... yeah. We 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 come back to the store, and uh, both the gals are on the floor laughing together because they've had a few drinks, and they are thoroughly bonded at this point. Because Anne kind of like Lydia was very standoffish for a while there, um, but she makes it known that like she she's looking for love. But she doesn't know how to get it because she feels that she doesn't have she doesn't make an impression on people, mm-hmm. and people just kind of pass her by, kind of like the homeless people in this movie, kind of like Perry. <laughs> um, but Anne lets her know that it's like, well, you know, you're kind of a bitch, and that counts as a personality. <laughs> and she's like, it does, doesn't it? Um, so after a few glasses of wine, presumably a few, um, they're they're laughing on the floor, they're having a good time. Um, and both of our guys walk in on this scene and we get a farcical moment where both parties, um, Jack and Anne, they're, they're like trying to convince their respective sheepish partner to like go out to dinner and every, like nobody actually wants to at first and it takes some, you know, like some strong army to get it done. But eventually they all agree to go out and we get another fun uh, call back to the the ooh a cooler where we're walking on the sidewalk and Perry drags behind for a second to pick up a random bottle from a trash bag. Yeah, <laughs> and I really love the uh, the physical acting here with Robin Williams and Honey Bunny. 
because like he he's doing like t-rex arms where he's got his hands like really clenched tight to his chest and it, it immediately communicates like defensive or sheepish or you know nervous or something mm-hmm. and she doesn't like fuck like from head to toe she she has this character down pat like you'd have to see the performance to know what i'm talking about but she brings a physicality to it that just fucking works um but yeah uh, they start bonding they start talking about what she does for a living involves like publishing of trashy romance novels and he he stops her and he says like there's nothing trashy about romance and she's like oh tell me more (laughs) um but we go out for dumplings kyle and you want to tell us what happens here yeah, uh, basically, Jack and and uh, Anne watch these two uh, try to function in a restaurant, uh, and they're yeah they're both very clumsy. Um, this is making me really really, really hungry because we don't have any good Asian restaurants around here, like any none. Um, and while I was watching this, I'm like, God, I could fuck up some some food right now. Um, yeah, she at one point is getting is it chow mein or uh, maybe. Um, uh, but chop suey I'm not sure what it is but some kind of noodle and she's trying to take it from the plate to her plate and I guess it's like they've got a bunch of big dishes or whatever uh, and she's trying to get it and she's doing a horrible job to the point where Jack has to like help her <laughs> with the chopsticks and try to like put it like help her get it on the plate uh, they both drop their dumplings both uh, Jack and Lydia or Perry and Lydia they drop their dumplings and still eat them off the floor um, but just the whole time Lit, uh, Anne and Jack are just like kind of watching it happen, like <laughs> just watching the meat. Yeah, this uh, the sequence goes on for a very long time, and yeah. uh, we keep doing like wipe edits, like think Star Wars or Indiana Jones kind of shit. <laughs> but um, and it goes on and on and on. It's just utterly embarrassing. But it ends on a very charming note where uh, Robin Williams starts singing a song about Lydia. And he just goes on and on and on. It sounds like he's making it up on the spot. I don't know if this is an actual song. Um, and we get this really cool shot where we're pulling back from the, the table. And by the way, the the backdrop that they're sitting in front of is Terry Gilliam to a T. Like it's it, it's like gold ornamented with like neon light projecting from behind the wall. It it looks straight out of Brazil. Um, but yeah, the, the camera pulls back and we get to see as he's singing, like all the all the restaurant staff, like just kind of sitting with their their chins and their palms, just like, are they leaving yet? <laughs> it's like, nope, he's got to finish the fucking song. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Anne and Jack have a sweet moment following the dinner, uh, where they they kind of like have a mutual laugh over all the party fouls that happened at dinner, um, and then they kind of like have a have a good smooch in the doorway and it's a very romantic moment and it feels very genuine where it's like this whole time jack has been kind of pushing back against and you know being utterly just like in love with him and him this is him finally kind of like giving her something back in return finally <laughs> um but then we uh we cut to lydia and perry and do, do you want to tell us about this exchange here because a lot a lot is said here like Not a lot really. of words are spoken but i mean it's a very heavy emotional moment it's it's an after dinner i wasn't paying attention it's just an after dinner walk and talk and it's just it, it starts out as that and then she takes it too far and it gets dark and it gets weird 
I just got the part where she's like, you're just going to not call me. You're like, you're going to hook up with me tonight, and you're not going to call me, and blah, 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 blah. And he's just like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's not what's going to happen. He basically convinces it's not going to happen. And she believes it, and I believe it too. I like, I don't think he's going to, I don't think he's going to cut and run here. He's like, I don't want to come inside. He's like, I mean, I would like to, but he's like, but I don't, I don't need to. Like, I, there's time for that in the future, I guess. Like, we don't need to do that tonight. But yeah, I, I, when they were walking and talking, walking and talking post-date, I'm just like, yeah, okay, whatever. Well, what I like about it is it starts out very light, like, like exactly what you're describing, just like, like walk and talk post-dinner. But then she starts, I, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this word, but uh, cat, catastrophizing, <laughs> um, which is you're basically you're looking at only negative outcomes. You're you're going down the rabbit hole and mm-hmm. you're kind of seeing seeing negative outcomes before they've come to pass. And she's she's expressing her thought process out loud. So what starts out as innocent post-dinner talk t- rapidly turns into her like, imagining every bad thing that he could do to her and he does have to like call a timeout and say like hey we just met and made made love and broke up all in the span of 30 seconds like I, d- I don't know what you're thinking right now but none of none of that actually happened yet so slow slow the fuck down and in fact he does tell her to shut up <laughs> i really like that it reminded yeah. me of batman 89 where he's like you're a nice girl and i like you a lot but right now shut up <laughs> it's like you know Sometimes that's called for. <laughs> it's yeah. like sometimes Shh. important shit needs to Shut come it. out, and and I need you to like clear the floor. Just let me have this moment. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, he he tells her on their first pseudo date together that he is utterly over the moon about her. He loves her, and she reacts positively to it, and she embraces him gently and like gives him a little peck on the lips and says, "You can call me." Um, He's like, I don't have her number. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't give her number at all. And uh, we get a really interesting shot here where she closes her door behind her. And uh, we we see Perry through the through the glass of her door, which creates like a split down the middle of his face and has like two faces there. And then like there's an orchestra sting of some sort. And uh, he flips out here. And he like back he backpedals into the middle of the street, and uh, like a spotlight is shown on him. And it's very it's very fantastical, but very effective here. Um, and we get cross cut back and forth between him kind of like writhing in the street, and uh, the incident that happened to Babbitts. And being as you alluded to this earlier in the in our talk here, uh, do you want to tell us what happens here? Because this sequence is nutty. Yeah, so the guy that was like renting out, not renting, but letting him stay in the basement says that she was, his wife was really beautiful. Um, and we kind of get like a close up shot of her, and she's very lovely, and they're having like a, a nice dinner, and they get like a kiss on the lips. Um, and the dude that comes in to kill everybody comes in with a shotgun. Uh, he, I don't know if he plugs anybody else first, but he, he ends up shooting uh, his wife right in the back of the head. And her brains splatter on his face, and like we get a, like a quick shot of her. Her face is gone. Like this guy blew her face off into uh, Perry's face. That is 
I mean, he was like he was like madly in love with his wife. Like he he loved her to death, and that is I can't think of anything more horrible. Like that's, that's one of the most horrible things I think I've ever heard. Um, yeah, I would be pretty fucked up after that too. Um, I would probably need a, a little time in a in a mental institution. Like I need to talk to some. I need to talk through this. I'm gonna need some drugs, and we're gonna need to talk through this, <laughs> or never talk about it again. <laughs> Just well, hand people a card. I'm like, don't ask me if I'm married. Yeah, I mean he. He went to an institution for a year, didn't speak, and now he's essentially running away from reality because yeah. the trauma that, you know, was visited upon him. But this sequence, um, damn, uh, this reminded me a lot of the closing moments of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Where it's, it's like we're cross-cutting back and forth and back and forth between multiple planes of reality. Um, the Red Knight is here chasing Perry down the street. Um, he's flipping out. Um then we cut back to visions of the incident where his wife was shot. Uh, the camera works really intense here. Um, this sequence goes on for only a couple minutes, but um, just purely from an editing standpoint, it's pretty remarkable. It's very intense. Um, and then somehow Perry ends up back at the bridge where he first met Jack. Mm-hmm. And somehow, and this is where the hyper reality comes in. The exact same thugs pull yeah. <laughs> pull up in the exact same jeep, this time with knives and bats. Yeah, and, the, and they, it's like your timing is impeccable. <laughs> yeah, they work him over. Uh, they do a number on him, as you would say. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's one thirty. It's one thirty a.m. Man, got to beat ass. Beat ass down by the docks. <laughs> Um, yeah, they, they run up to him, and I really like that uh, we see the the shadow of the Red Knight projected behind them. Mm-hmm. So we don't see the actual Red Knight, but like the shadow that they're casting isn't theirs. It's the Red Knight. Um, and when they lay into him, like they slash him across the chest with a knife and like whack him with bats and stuff. Uh, he actually says thank you out loud um, as if like this is something he's been waiting for. Like, I, I guess if, if you know you're going insane or something and you're just lucid enough to know that like, maybe this is a form of release from that, I could see you having that reaction. I don't know. But, um, we cut back to Jack and, uh, he's, he's talking to his agent. Finally, yeah. apparently it's been like three years since he talked to David Hyde Pierce. So he's trying to get back in the game. Um, yeah, and we get feeling- this fun little sequence where Anne is like, in a teddy or something like trying like trying yeah. to make it known that she's like i'm here <laughs> like hello and while he's trying to have this conversation on the phone and uh they have a little bit of a blow up here uh, <laughs> i was like is he gonna fucking dump her <laughs> i'm like he's gonna dump her like, why Dude. because he made coffee <laughs> like uh like yeah he's He's going to get back into the game. He's feeling good about himself. And I guess in his mind, the reason why he was with her is because he was in like a, in a, he doesn't say this out loud, but subconsciously, I think he was thinking that he was in a a bad place and this was the person that he was just with while he was in that bad place. And he wants to get to the next level. She was just a temporary girlfriend kind of thing. And she's not fucking having it like she she even she even calmly reasons with him which i thought was a really adult move she's like listen i i understand like you've had a rough patch here but it doesn't need to end like this and he's just like no no it it needs to end like this she's not happy about that Mm, she she has some great lines here where he's like i don't know i think i think we need to like 
pump the brakes a little, like, you know, slow down a bit. And she's like, where have I, where have I been? Have I been going, have I been going fast here? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, she has it all. <laughs> but he, he tries to reason with her. That's like, I think I should be alone for now. And it's like, what? What? Huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the big one is she asks like, do you love me? And his response is the, the, the killer, the, the nail in the coffin. I don't know. It's like, mm-hmm. there's only, truthfully, there's only one answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> the other one is you, you should go now. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That doesn't work. Um, and her, her rationale here is that's some bullshit. If you're going to hurt me, you hurt me right now. You don't stretch this out over months because that's some bullshit. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I had a funny response to, like, he throws out that, then then why do you want to be with me anymore, she asks. He, no, he asks because he's a self-loathing, you know, pile of shit for the most part. And it's so obvious that it's like because, like she said, like an hour ago in the movie, <laughs> she loves you. What are you going to do? <laughs> like she, do- she doesn't have a good explanation for it. That's just how she feels. She doesn't get it either, but it is what it is. Um, but yeah, someone found Jack's wallet. He gets a phone call, and it needs to be said he gave he gave Perry his wallet so he could pretend to pay for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets a phone call in the middle of this intense conversation that somebody found his wallet. So it's like, oh shit. Um, and then we go back to that dingy ass hospital, um, and we learn that Perry is in a coma. And it's indeterminate when he's going to come out of it, if he's going to come out of it. And as soon as I saw the doctor, I was like, it's Dr. Gigantor. (laughs) Um, This gentleman, I don't know his name. I have no idea. But um, he is the construction worker in Speed on the bus. I haven't Uh, seen Speed. You haven't seen Speed? Jesus, fuck. Jesus, fuck, Kyle. You just hurt me. You just hurt me on a oof, oof. How dare you? When um, did you when did you see Point Break? Oh, <laughs> I see uh-huh. what we're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> very very me. recently. Come at me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this guy was in Speed, and it made me happy because I love Speed. Um, but yeah, uh, Anne storms off from the hospital because at this point, Perry is set up to either become like a ward of the state in some fashion, uh, because he doesn't really have any family. Or the doctor kind of like shoots Jack a look like, or somebody could sign the papers and take care of him. Wink, wink. <laughs> so he doesn't is his, sign the papers. <laughs> is his coma psychosomatic or is it actually because of uh, him getting beat? I think it was described as because of the beating. Or, okay. No, no, it is psychosomatic. I think. Okay. Um, I think he, the doctor does describe, like he, he uh, mentions the patient's history. He's like, being as this and this and this happened to this person, it's not surprising that this on top of that would, you know, make him fully retreat from reality. Um, but yeah, we, we cut to an overhead of Jack, and he is back in the studio ex- almost exactly how he was in the beginning of the film, except with better lighting. Um, and he is smoking while he's on the phone. I'm sure you you caught that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And he goes on a little walk with David Hyde Pierce, and uh, we have this odd little moment that uh, 
Michael Jeter sees him walking into some high rise with David Hyde Pierce and he tries to get his attention. He's like, Hey, I know you like, why won't you acknowledge me? And we, we get a replay of, of, of the theme that has been playing out throughout the entire movie of a poor, unfortunate indigent or homeless person being utterly ignored by the people around him. And, uh, Jack does walk into the building. He completely just zips past him. Um, and <laughs> we have like a, a very brief conversation with somebody who's trying to produce a television show, and this is I John Delancey. Hate, I hate this guy. I hate this actor. You uh, hate John Delancey? Oh, I can't stand him. Uh, he, everything he pops up in, he rubs me the wrong way. Uh, multiplicity. I, I, he's he's has a very small role in multiplicity, but he's just. Oh, I just want to fucking hit him. Well, that's what he does. Oh, he's worse. John, I think John Delancey does that. That's all I, he does. I don't think I dislike him more than James Woods, but he's up there. Ooh, the two of them in the same movie would be pretty rough. Not gonna lie. I just rewatched uh, Any Given Sunday. We should do a sports month. Uh, Fuck I'd, yes. I'd love to talk about that movie. Um, but he's that shithead doctor in that uh, sports doctor in that movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's him and uh, Aaron Eckhart, the the mm-hmm. young not not yet jaded doctor yeah um oh well, that's is that my i was gonna was gonna say my choice would be for one of the sports is vision quest which has uh, uh what's that actor's name again this guy no um the his assistant in uh any given sunday um, oh is that aaron eckhart no, not Aaron Eckhart. He's he was the offensive coordinator. Um, oh, Matt Modine. <laughs> yeah, Matt Modine. Matt Modine is a uh, um, Loudon Swain in uh, Vision Quest uh, wrestler, a uh, high school Which I wrestler. I haven't seen. And oh, I would yeah. very much like to. Oh, and it's I, it's fantastic. I I know you don't quite agree, but I I love sports dramas. Like I I, think I, I really bite for them, even the shitty ones. <laughs> no, the um, big the big man. Was that was that the Liam Neeson boxing movie? Uh, that's not really a sports drama. I say that was a tough. That was a tough one to get through. Uh, <laughs> that was rough. Um, but yeah, John Delancey, uh, folks at home, Ugh. if you're not aware, he plays Q on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yes, thank you. He was that very first episode I watched. I'm like, this motherfucker is starting the series <laughs> for me. Like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm like, just Oof, okay, let's I go. Mean, there, when it comes to actors, there are specialized tools. And he he his speciality is being a tool. <laughs> oh, if he starts like if he starts talking in like a soft voice or anything like that, just <laughs> um, and yeah, John Delancey's pitch for this TV show that he wants Jack to be involved with is wacky and wise homeless characters. They yeah. love being homeless, and I don't blame Jack. Like even if he didn't have any sort of connection with the homeless, I would run out the door. Like that yeah, sounds no. terrible. um and yeah he excuses himself he goes looking for michael jeter he does not find him um and we get him going back to perry's basement dwelling um to like i don't know look for perry or something which obviously he knows he's not there um but we get a track like a narration track from perry like reiterating the these they said as in the floating fat people said you're the one so jack has a guilty conscience obviously and uh he retrieves perry's notebook and the pinocchio doll and uh he 
enters the mental institution, which, oh my God, this is the most inhospitable of locations. This doesn't look realistic at all, but it, it definitely sets a tone. There, I think there is actual video footage of uh, like an asylum in like the 30s. And it was just, it was like a state-run hospital and like literally like the, the door, like the windows were just like, like uh, nailed shut. Like they, it was really dark that you just go in and there's just patients just roaming around. Like they weren't actually helping them. And um, I think that kind of set the, uh, that's where the, the insane asylum um, thing comes in. And a lot of movies was from that footage. Uh, it was because it wasn't that they were like doing evil things to them. It was just like, we just wanted to get them like they we didn't know how to treat these people so we just put them all in a bunch of big rooms in this house and then we just boarded it shut and then just gave them food occasionally yeah, um, there's a there's a funny anecdote from robert Enkland on a i think it was nightmare on elm street five where uh, they had a scene where they had like a hundred extras all acting it was supposed to be an insane asylum as represented by this nightmarish room like a single room Mm-hmm. And there's like a bunch of people and they're it's like a mosh pit they're all like mm-hmm. touching arms and like there's no breathing room and uh he said it got really scary in there because there's a whole bunch of like actors who are trying to like have their moment in mm-hmm. getting too into it and it was literally turning into a mosh pit because Jeez. people were being really trying to act crazy for the camera and he said like me a trained actor did not feel safe in that environment (laughs) i got a fucking uh i got a workout in while i was in uh new jersey i went to a warp tour this last year it was like the it was like they were coming back for like one last show and uh i I don't do mosh pits i'm an adult i uh (laughs) what i do is i either the trick is to stand at the end of them or in front of them because it gets so hot but that's the one place where there's air so you just have to be mindful that there's either people in front of you or right behind you doing stuff well the band i was seeing wanted people to crowd surf and i was in front of the mosh pit somehow i got pushed up there so i'm pretty close to the stage so he's like for this last song i want everybody getting up here so literally the whole song i'm i'm turning around and just have one person after the other and like it's like, ooh, a light person, then a fucking fat dude, like, <laughs> drops. like, I got out, and, like, it was really hot right there, too, and, like, people are falling down right here. The whole song, I just was, like, just tossing people. So, I got out, and I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe, like, I kind of, like, <gasps> and, like, my arms were fucking on fire, I'm like, god damn, and, like, there's a few of us were like, that was fucking scary there for a minute, I didn't think we were gonna get out of there. So, yeah, I could see... In, like in a contained space like that with everybody's body heat and everybody like uh acting up like that I'm like that would freak me out too i mean and i'm at a place sounds, where stuff like that like happens hell, Kyle. yeah it well, sounds I'm at a like place, my own personal but i'm at a place where stuff like that happens and everybody reacts to it like when people fall down they pick them back up everybody's really mindful in a place like that like oh they're performing they're performing on the ground that's what they're that's what their character's doing. We'll just let him down there. <laughs> just stand down there. You're fine. It's like, oh yeah, he's bleeding from the head. You can do that if you, you act You can hard do that. <laughs> it's a horror movie, of course. Oh, puking. Ah, it's part of the movie. Not not to get too bogged down, but also can't help but think of uh, Renfield, uh, Tom Waits in the Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, the asylum in that movie is pretty intense, too. I haven't seen that since I was... Maybe in the eighth grade. I'm going to have to well, rewatch it. It involves a lot of fire hoses and um, the orderlies wearing literal cages for helmets. Okay, I do remember that briefly. <laughs> yeah, uh, just wanted to throw that out there because it's an interesting visual. But 
Um, yeah, uh, Jack goes to visit Perry, and uh, he has the notebook and Pinocchio with him, and the, <laughs> there is a guy that is standing in the middle of the room going, no, 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 no. And uh, I'm sorry, but like, he, there, there's an enemy in Donkey Kong Country 2. It's like a phantom guy who throws boxes at you. And he oh, goes, I know nah, that bitch. Nah, nah, yeah, nah, I hate nah, that dude. Nah. And I was like, oh my god, it sounds just like it. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, in the background we can see Lydia. Uh, she's like talking to an orderly or something. Um, she doesn't see Jack, but uh, from the dialogue exchange in the background, we can tell that she's been coming here frequently, and she's been like donating like sheets and like pajamas to to Perry while he's been. A, catatonic and uh we get a really really long sequence here where uh jack is furious with the unconscious perry and he's like expressing his he's like having a one-sided conversation with an unconscious man and he's basically like fighting against himself because he knows we know that he he needs to get the grail like like some some force in the universe is pushing him to get the grail because somehow it's exactly what what perry needs to come back to himself um and he's arguing with himself in the form of yelling at perry and it, it goes on for a few solid minutes here and it's very well performed but it is a little frustrating because he's he's only alluding to what he's planning to do but we the audience like from minute one we're like Go get the grail. Like, yeah. We, we, we all know. Just fucking do right. it. <laughs> and Kyle, do you want to walk us through, like, the the actual operation to retrieve the grail? <laughs> uh, I guess. Um, I was kind of checked out at this point. I'm like, this is going to be a mega happy ending. I, I had already written in my, my, uh, my notes. I'm like, it's going to be a mega happy ending. Um, <laughs> he... What does he do? Is he, what does he put on? Does he put on? He like, puts some on kind of garb? Perry's clothes from the first time he met him. Okay. Yeah, he ends up. Uh, what 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 kind of Batman utility belt thing does he use to get up this uh, castle? Well, he has like a knotted. It's not a rope ladder, but it's a it's a rope with a series of knots tied in it to make it you know easy for someone with Jeff Bridges' level of physicality to climb yeah. <laughs> 200 pounds of smoking and drinking to get, exactly yeah. and then he has, he has like a handcrafted grappling hook of sorts that mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't appear to doesn't appear to actually work on a f- like physics I don't know if they work that way but it, it's clever he he does have some batman gear it actually kind of reminded me of uh, Robert De Niro's character in uh, Brazil uh-huh um, but yeah, he has like a makeshift grappling hook and he gets to the top of the castle and, uh, he, he comes in from the roof and there's this massive stairwell. Uh, the set construction here made me think a little bit of the Super Mario Brothers movie. Yeah. Um, and he oh, has a Super random Mario vision. <laughs> he has a random vision here where he sees Edwin, like with the shotgun. I don't Which know what the doesn't fuck the make point any is. sense. Yeah. It has no place in the movie. It's just like a. I guess it's supposed to lend tension or something, but it it feels very out of place. Um, long story short, he comes into like a den of some sort with like a fireplace and everything, like a study, and uh, he finds the Grail, and it turns out it is in fact just some sort of trinket, like an it's old a trophy. trinket. Yeah, yeah, it's a trophy from the 1930s, but it's just that a trophy. 
Um, it just so happens that there's an old man in the room who drops a glass as he's in there, and the old man is unconscious. He took a bunch of pills with some wine, so clearly there's an intention there. Um, and Jack, I don't know if this was intentional on his part or not, but he just kind of like brushes past the old man. Like he, like he does react to it. He does acknowledge it, but he doesn't really do anything about it. Um, and then he leaves via the front door and he trips a laser alarm, uh, which, you know, triggers it like a bell alarm and everything. And then he just runs out into the street and he does, he trips the alarm on purpose. Oh, on purpose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he doesn't like, he's just like, Oh, I know what I can do is like, I could trip the alarm. They'll come get him instead of, instead of incriminating myself, they'll come and I can still pull this off for my friend. Yeah, and it it certainly works because we get a close up of a, a newspaper headline saying like suicide thwarted by like cat burglar or something. Um, and yeah, long story short, Perry does wake up with the Grail in his hands. Mm-hmm. And he has some dialogue here with with Jack. It's sweetly delivered, and he, the big one that he throws out there is, uh, "Can I miss her now?" And mm. it's basically him talking about his wife, and it's like, yes. Yes, Perry, you you can you can miss your wife now. You can return to yourself, and you're okay now. Um, but yeah, we we do in fact get a mega happy ending. Um, Lydia shows up just in time to see uh, Robin Williams leading a choir of <laughs> of uh, patrons at the at the institute. <laughs> I love New York in June. Yeah. <laughs> Some some kind of it seems like a show tune of some kind that he's trying. It's to like a crooner song. tune of some yeah. sort. Like it, it's a it's funny because it, it's kind of fitting, being as it's a very old fashioned way to end a movie too. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, they they embrace they embrace they smooch, and then cut to Anne at work. Um, Jack shows up there. He's all cleaned up, and uh, <laughs> her reaction is, "What do you expect me to do? Applaud?" <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like ah, this lady, I like her. Um, <laughs> I like too that she's like, "What are you here for? Your stuff?" And he just he's silent for like two minutes straight. He's like, "Are you here to like pick up your stuff? There's no more stuff. It all got burned, accidentally." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, but yeah, he he gives a very sheepish, "I uh, love you." Uh, <laughs> and then she gives him a good old the uh, the classic slap and smooch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I like she's gonna slap him like I'm like I know it's gonna happen this yeah this this was actually a good I, I liked this moment like it, it it was funny but it was also nice it was sweet it was a good moment it was nice I mean a big part of you know scripting a movie is remaining true to the characters like mm-hmm. if you if you lay the foundation for people to behave in a certain way just if you follow that path at the very least people won't be disappointed on that level mm-hmm. um, it's when the equation doesn't add up that you get problems <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, final scene in the movie, uh, we, we get a special effects sky, uh, it's a very cloudy sky, and then we tilt down to the same place in the park where Robin Williams was nude previously, and now we're both nude laying down mm-hmm. in the park, and we're doing the cloud bursting thing where, like, like Perry had told us, you gotta be nude in order to do it, and uh, Jack seems to be, like, having a good time here, like, we're both in high spirits. You know, I joke that, you know, Mel Gibson has had uh, whatever spouse killed or has died in, like, every movie he's in. It's not every single one, but, like, 90%. 
Uh, I'm thinking back now. I'm like Robin Williams has actually had in his movies quite a few spouses pass away. Uh, Google yeah. Hunting. This. Uh, there's another one I'm thinking of. I can't think of right off the top of my head right now. We were, well, we were considering doing it for the show, but I think What Dreams May Come is similar. Yes. Yes. Um, did is, did he have a spouse in Pat? Yeah. Um, Patch Adams. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's very similar to this one. <laughs> um. His relationship dies in Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, <laughs> if that's well, if that's the same thing. Uh, that's one of the better parts of that movie. It's, mm. it's the fact that it they don't get back together. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> the same could be said for Real Steel, also an American classic. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but yeah, the final scene is us singing together to the overture, which the the whole soundtrack swells, and then we tilt back up to the sky, and we get a cartoonishly lit up new york skyline fireworks and a literal literal the end in the sky um it's a very sweet ending it's a mega happy ending as it's you a mega described happy it. it's a very accurate description <laughs> which terry gilliam is not known for always doing no always no, sir. <laughs> but yeah um I liked it. I don't think I'll ever watch this one again. Uh, I think that Terry Gilliam's movies have a rewatchability. Some of them do. Uh, this is not one of them. This is a one and done. But it's a pretty decent movie. I think it's a. I mean, uh, like this. It's a little slow in parts, but um, there's some there's some heartstring tugging, and there's definitely some comedy. Uh, yeah, I think it's a fun watch. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I probably won't come back to it. Um, it's kind of a curious movie in a lot of ways because it feels like. Like I'd be very curious, like how this movie would turn out if it wasn't directed by Terry Gilliam. Yeah, because it's a very odd script in a lot of ways, and without his like visual flourishes and stuff, and his odd sensibilities when it comes to humor and violence, for that matter. Um, I don't know what what you would get from like if you took exactly the same script and you just handed it to a different person. I think you'd get a radically different film. Wes Anderson, he would make it quirky. It's got the it's got the same amount of humor, and uh, he would have a cuter way of you know like covering all the bases and stuff like that. It would have heartstring tugging. I think Wes Anderson would do it. It would turn into stop motion whenever the Red King shows up or the Red yes. Knight. Yes, it would. Yeah, it would. <laughs> You'd have stop motion interludes and uh, a lot more on screen title cards. Um, <laughs> a lot more miniatures. Yeah, it would be. I mean. I'm pretty sure you could hand any script to him and he'd make it his own. Like David Lynch. Kinda... David Lynch is the Fisher King. <laughs> oh, fuck. I think that would be heavy. I'd like, start smoking be... again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an odd little movie. Um, mostly enjoyable. Like mm-hmm. Very, very charismatic performances from a lot of folks in it. It it touches on like every emotion to some degree or another. So you're... I did catch myself checking out at times. Yes, but yes. but whenever I was invested, I I was invested. So that's that's something. But most importantly, for a Robin Williams performance, because you can get him just doing, you can get Robin Williams just doing his crazy genie basically the whole movie, um, or you can get him doing like a good dramatic performance, like one hour photo. But this is where like he can use that same energy, and it actually makes sense for him to be like that. Yeah, uh, we didn't go into a whole lot of detail about any, any of the performances in this movie, but um, he's playing a very subdued, very sweet character half of the time, and then he does get to be his his manic Robin Williams self every time and again. But uh, for the most part, he's kind of like 
<laughs> it reminded me of Mrs. Doubtfire. The I am Job. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he he has like a childlike quality to him at times, um, but then when he's lucid, um, he becomes someone else entirely. So this is this is a good opportunity for him to flex his acting ability, of which he had, you know, boundless amounts of. But uh, yeah, this was an interesting one to take a look at for for him in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what we're going to be doing for next week, um, but it's, it's the last choice. week of March, so yeah, it's it's my choice, um, so I guess it'll have to be a surprise, but um, anyway, uh, thanks for joining us as we caught up on the filmography of Robin Williams. Uh, yeah. Until next time.